And that's it for the tuneless humming hour. Next up, we've got the crapshoot. Uh, in the meantime, keep on humming. Crapshoot, 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 crapshoot. That's good. It's a good policy. It's like that Zach Galifianakis joke where he says, Hi, I'm Zach Galifianakis. I think I said that right. Well, welcome to episode 15 of The Crapshoot. It is March 12th? I don't know. It's 11th, been like 12th? a I think it's 12th. Five years since our last episode. Oh, I named the file ahead of time, and it's got 12 at the end, so it must be, must be the 12th. Yeah, this is the, uh, this is the episode after the previous episode that I still haven't posted that we recorded like three weeks ago. Uh, I've, been, I've been in a real... I, I just like hit a getting shit done wall mm. in, in significant patches the last, uh, last couple of weeks. So, so we'll get that posted sometime before we post this, oh, good. but uh, they may be close-ish together for us. So it's not just this, your most important project in the whole world, but all your projects. Yes, that no, are... no. I've been, I, I, I've, I think I've posted like one LARP trek in the last two weeks. Okay. Uh, it's more of the podcast than you've posted in the last well, two weeks. Well, I did, I did post one episode of the other, the horror film podcast with Yakov, uh, but that right. one is Secondary podcast. literally, you know, we, we, we hit record on Skype, we talk for two hours, we hit stop, I drop those files in between the intro and outro music in the file, and that's it, and then I make him post it if I'm... Yeah, so... It's, Whereas I've been making this continually more and more work for you. <laughs> <laughs> that is that Managing is that, to infect that is, you. That is that is that is slightly the problem. That's that's actually one of the things that helped me up on this. Uh, so apologies to anybody who was listening last week for their uh, their iTunes review songs, and then found out that they weren't on that podcast. Even though I think I said they would be, uh, it just didn't happen. So they'll be on. They'll be on this one. I think you swore. I I, I swore. Um, yeah, once bitten, twice shy. No I would go back and try us. and parse whatever I said finally to exculpate myself but that would require actually sitting down and listening to the whole podcast which we know that i don't do God so forbid. uh anyway uh, i'm josh millard uh and that's 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 jesse holden i'm jesse holden and once and for the first time in a few episodes right I well, think. since your mom was here two episodes ago that's right for the first time since my mom was here <laughs> scolding me for scolding you about your mom jokes we do have a guest uh Matt, uh, what's do you know Matt's last name? I, uh, <laughs> I believe it's uh, Bogart. 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 Yes. That's in yogurt. No, it's not. It's Bogart. It's Yay! Matt Bogart. Congratulations. Um, that's good. Has that ever come up before? Have, my name? Like, like, was that like a cruel schoolyard taunt? Um, my name? No, not so much. It's come up before, but <laughs> I, I'm sure there are plenty of other cruel schoolyard taunts, but nothing regarding my name. I thought Jesse was trying to say that for the first time in a couple episodes, he was Jesse in this episode. Oh, no. <laughs> you did Gosh. sort of ramble your way into that. Yeah. Wow. You know why I haven't had any beer yet today or yesterday? Clearly, clearly something needs to be done. I'm not myself. Um, you know, Matt, I'm going to turn you up because I think I had you not very up. Uh, <laughs> So I'll just I'll go back in and, and tweak that manually I'm in sure post, that, as yeah, they say. That will definitely happen. Uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> this week uh, we have a new one from Widmer Brothers that I hadn't. Or it's new to me. I don't know. Widmer, Widmer, Widmer. 
I don't know. Bogart, yogurt. Yeah. Columbia Common Spring Ale. So here we go. We'll give it a shot. All right. Cheers. <sighs> Matthew, you are drinking some. I can't see enough of the label, but I think Diet Pepsi. Uh, silver one very well done yay i rule you can it's it's like it's it's like basketball uniforms or something like you got the light color and the dark color and so like oh that like like this pepsi's playing an away game in uh, some sugar-free city and so it's wearing the light or do you like the colorful ones on away games i think i screwed that up what, what i don't are know we talking about basketball you <laughs> the, 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 the diet pepsi he's talking label. about his ability it's to a, correctly identify it's a, it's diet a, pepsi it's when it's sitting in front of instead of a blue label Right. Like like sugar is color or something. I don't know exactly. I, don't I know promised what Matt's w- wouldn't get any grief for not drinking beer. No, no, no. That's one of the <laughs> things reasons is, I brought is, him this on. It's not intended as, as 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 grief. I just we were ignoring beverages. But if you beverages. want to join me in starting to give him grief grief now and going back on my promise. Well, see, it's a, it's a complicated thing because like on the one hand, I enjoy giving people grief. On the other hand, I don't want to be weird about like you know, well, why aren't you indulging in this substance? Because that's kind of a bullshitty thing to do to people. Right. Why so. aren't you drinking this literal poison? I, why aren't you, I why think aren't I'm you... drinking literal poison as well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> what is it in, in in Diet Pepsi? Is it uh, do they use uh, what NutraSweet or or what, what what's the Splenda is the what everyone uses now? Is that aspartame? That sounds is that different. Aspartame, I think is aspartame. 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 That sounds about right. Yeah. Um, so it, it, again, it's been so long, I've completely forgotten how to do this. But I, by way of introduction, <laughs> Matt Bogart is a um, co- first and foremost, I think it's fair to say, comic artist. Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I make my living doing day jobs, but you know, right. that's what I spend my time on. Um, releasing comics uh, online for free and also to buy and also print versions to buy. He um, has given me a huge amount of useful information in formatting for different, uh, just kind of behind-the-scenes process information in terms of formatting for Kindle and EPUB and PDF and things like that that I found really interesting and useful. Those are terrible memories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we try to go straight for those on this show. <laughs> Really trying um, to stir up the muck. Really, you know, go to the dark place. <laughs> but on this, on, on on your current project, I think this is a new process for you. The way that your current comic project is being released is this the first time you're doing it this way? You mean releasing it page by page online? Yeah. Um, sort of. I did that with my first book, the or my first book since I came back to comics a couple of years ago. Um, but it was very random. Right. I I do three, two or three pages one week and then do three weeks without anything and then do three or four more pages and things. Whereas this one, I'm claiming that I'm on a specific schedule, but it's sort of, uh, we'll see whether that keeps up. <laughs> Does, so the, the one you were talking about before the chairs hiatus was the first complete thing of yours that I think I read through. And, um, I mean, I know I read through it, but I think it was the first. <laughs> um, and then the most recent one, Oh, It's the End of the World, is just we're following along and Josh is caught up on it. And I think it's incredibly enjoyable. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really digging it. I, uh, you know, it's, I, <laughs> it's a weird thing. Like, I, I, I want to I wanna be like, I'm sorry that I didn't know about your work before, but that's an absurd thing to say because I'm sorry I didn't know, like, everything that's out there. But, but I'm excited to know it now because i'm re- yeah like i've really been enjoying uh uh oh it's the end of the world um and I, I i just sort of clicked over to it and caught what was the most recent page and like didn't really have any context for it and it was really 
it's actually kind of an interesting experience to do this. I, I read that page. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I'm interested. You know, I like the look. Okay, let's let's jump back and and see where. It's, and and by the time I, because I just binged on the whole thing and, and and caught up. And by the time I caught up, I'd sort of forgotten that that page was there. And then it came back. It was like, wow, this has a whole different valence to it than it had when I was reading it out of context. Kind of like a movie that does like a a little snippet of like you know the third act you know as the opener of the film and then jumps back and tells the story up to there and you kind of jump like oh so it was I, I realized it's sort of unique to the moment in time that I happened to come across it but it was really kind of a neat sort of effect that's perfect that's uh I you came at just the right time too I think I might have put in the post saying that uh that that may be my favorite page that I've done of this entire series so um, I'm glad if you're getting introduced to it. I should leave that one up for a while so that people can see that one first <laughs> And it may very well end up being um, – I've never done it this way where I'm releasing multiple pages. I, like a, It may very well end up changing when I do the finished book too. You might end up getting scenes like that at the beginning when it's all collected into a finished yeah. book. But um, if, you, if you just use the exact same page two times in the book, it's just one less page you have to draw and yeah. ink and write. So. That's fantastic. <laughs> I've seen that used a number of times in, 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 in professional comics like uh, like, you know. They like, just like, put like the same Marvel. page twice. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes you just really get a really strong effect by clearly using the same Batman frame four oh. times in a row. I, I thought it, uh, I thought it was exi- <laughs> like exactly the same page two times in a row. That would be amazing. That would like like, like, like a dinosaur comics approach to like <laughs> major label superhero comics, where you just have to try and write in some dialogue to make sense of the fact that we've seen the same thing again and again and again. <laughs> I can see Alan Moore pulling that off for a You know, I you thought know. you were making a self-referential joke about using the same, you know, collection of screen grabs from <laughs> Star Trek: The Next Generation in your comic LARP track. I wasn't even thinking about it, but yeah, I, I, I guess that's you uh, kind of hoist, by, by that, hoist that's, by your own petard. Yeah, there. That's, you're like that. You're two for two on correctly conjugating hoist. Um, I think I'm two for like seventeen altogether. But if, the la- if we're only it, counting the last two, then I'm two for it, two. It, it, it's like it's like when people are talking sports stats, they'll try and find the most flattering range to say. So like, oh yeah, he's he, he's he's ten for the last fourteen shots. You know, it doesn't matter that you know his average is shitty over the game. You're trying to say if we narrow it to fourteen shots, ten out of them. That's really good. Are they doing that? You think oh, they, oh, you think the sportscasters you, are sucking up to the players? I, I don't think it's sucking up. I think they're just like looking for something interesting to say, and it's more interesting to pick out something that's a little bit more of an outlier than sure. Or, like, so like, it could be especially positive or negative. Yeah, just yeah, 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 exactly. Like, like I, I was at a okay. bar the other day. Uh, me and my wife went out to eat, and we saw uh, there was just a Blazers game that had just started. It was them versus the Mavericks, I mm-hmm. guess. Um, and I don't sure. really keep the, up the, with sports at all, but, but yeah, the Mavs, we, you we know. call them the Mavs. The, the D-Mavs. Uh, <laughs> we can call them the Dallas, Mavs. I think. I think they, right? I don't know. Right. Anyway, uh, terrible, terrible fucking start for Portland. And they were like down like four to 22 or something. And I'm presuming that they finished the game with a better ratio than that. But, you know, it's a terrible – and that's a big range. And, and it's, it's way less interesting to talk about how, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, it ended up 104 to 122 because, like, eh, whatever. It's a, it's a basketball game. And that's probably what happened. But, but that narrow thing is really interesting to talk about in isolation because it's like, oh, my gosh, over that specific range, it's a huge – Whatever the fuck. Really interesting might be a yeah. bit of a stretch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's as a, it's it's a messaging thing, you know. It's it's spinning. It's it's uh it's like in it's like an intentional version of shitty pop science reporting, where instead of like 
just being a lazy hack journalist and 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 posting a misrepresented number you're like intentionally trying to be like hey yeah let's let's spice this up let's mm-hmm. make this hyphenated numeric range as interesting as possible for these five seconds because you have to keep talking the whole time and you gotta have some tricks right I don't know. Yeah. I'm not really. I'm not even really interested in my own <laughs> train of thought here at this point. I, uh, but anyway, it's a so, nice, someone is. It's a nice dissection there. of how Jesse sometimes uses words correctly. Yeah, that's true. It is apparently what you were talking about. <laughs> I wanted to say uh, the, the 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 post the the, the newest page. Oh yeah, of, of the of comic has the the exchange of you know saying boyfriend and girlfriend to each other. And, mm-hmm. and oh, I have read the newest page. Then okay, good. Uh, I'm up to speed. Okay. You're not going to spoil it. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I was <laughs> only one person here Dang can it. spoil it for um, me by telling me what's going to happen. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> and uh, I'm talking about, I'm talking about yes, Matt. Yes. No, because he presumably knows. Right. Because I, I think because he, he's the. Author. I am if, at if this it, point one panel us. ahead of the two of you. I drew one more panel today. That's all there is to spoil. And I posted it on Twitter, so yeah. Okay. Actually, well. I want to I want to come back to that the whole writing ahead of where you are thing because I think that's it's an interesting thing. And it's something that I've been struggling a lot with actually. Hmm. Um, but but I wanted to say in the panel, he says, you know, you, you know, it's it's weird saying it's like licking a battery. Yeah. And I have a very specific uh, association with the concept of saying it's like licking a battery that goes to uh, old ass Metafilter thread, and I have no idea if you ever saw this or remember it, um, but I. It, it's uh, there was a question years ago on the the site I I, I moderate. Uh, I've got a question actor section called Ask Metafilter, and someone was basically saying, "Hey, what's Conalingus like?" Um, and, and they said something, and someone's answer was basically, "You know, what does it taste like?" It, it sort of tastes like licking a nine volt battery. Was their description? I listened to the episode where you talked about this. I am aware of this. Hooray! <laughs> so is that is that in any way resonant, or was that just like? incidental to that you know i think i probably drew that page around the same time that i listened to that episode but i think i had written it long before that mostly i was just i was trying to do it as a um uh the character although i'm just starting to tell it in the story the character is not that excited about being the boyfriend to this girl (laughs) so at the moment where they (laughs) finally make it official and say like you're my boyfriend and he's like you're my girlfriend I wanted just something that hints at the fact that he's like, yeah, that's that's cool. Um. <laughs> it's like this really low level phenomenon. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah, versus like, oh yeah, it's like the universe is exploding and roses and you know every cell in my body is vibrating. It's like, it kind of gives me indigestion when I say that I'm your boyfriend. <laughs> that's good, right? It's it's startling and unpleasant. <laughs> What, what podcast are you talking about where that was talked about? This podcast? I'm pretty sure. Did we talk about licking a battery being like Conalingus? On the Andy Bayo episode? It's not impossible. We had a lot to drink during that episode. We did So have that a could lot easily have come up because Andy's a longtime <laughs> Mephite too. So that would be in his uh, vocabulary. I'm sure any super So yeah, fans I'm sure just just me. just to, uh, Josh wasn't asking if if we influenced that line. Yeah, no, this oh, okay. show. But rather, <laughs> no, no, no. The I, 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 idea I, I, that it was similar to kind of just, 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 just yeah, just that it made me think. I mean, it's obviously line. not the only possible because, like, yeah, I mean that <laughs> the the very idea of looking at batteries evocative, completely separate of that one discussion about oral sex. I mean, I years think it goes without saying but, that he owes his entire career to us. Well, I right? mean, retroactively, I, I'm, I'm some, not not saying that, but. 
um, <laughs> non chronologically realistic way. <laughs> but it just it, it was just a weird little like frisson added to 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 it is. I think I have read that. Ask me, f- ask me. Yeah, I almost said ask me fi. That doesn't make any sense. Um, I've that. I've read pretty much all the I think historically relevant the entire, ones. Yeah, the I'll, porn I'll, in the woods one has to be one of my favorites. <laughs> oh my god! Did you ever encounter Matt the uh, the phenomena of of finding porn in the woods or otherwise laying around in some unlikely outdoor spot? That is unbelievably popular, but no, I haven't I haven't tried that myself. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people do it by accident, not because they're hunting for it. I think that would be a that would be a, be a great reality also. show, though. Porn hunters, just like three three motley crew of three guys who go out in the woods looking for porn and dumpsters. Well, Considering the amount it? of woods that there are on Earth and the amount of porn that must they be, they could do a lot of seasons. Yeah, exactly. you know. <laughs> It would almost have to be a period piece, though, because, like, you know, at this point, like, what are you going to do? Find someone's laptop? Right. One of the one of the the interestingnesses or interesting aspects of it is that our next generations are not going to ever have this experience, or if they do, it's not going to be as prevalent because obviously, porn, like most things, has shifted to the internet. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things that um, <laughs> you can find the corpse of a recently dead guy whose phone sells a charge and <laughs> receiving Snapchats. Why did there have to be a corpse? Involved? Well, I don't you know. I guess he could be drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I find I find there's a lot of problems that are solved very quickly and easily just by killing a person. I was like, really worried about the, where that was going at first. <laughs> Have you ever noticed? You know, necrophilia porn. You go out in the woods, you kill a guy, and then you have sex when you take pictures, and you look, it's like, oh, hey, look, I found some porn in the woods. That's basically the canonical event. That's. Have you ever noticed that Cunnilingus is like licking a battery with 17 dead people in the room? (laughs) No, but just that similarly, it's one of those things that, like, I had no idea this was a shared experience. This is just something I thought only happened to me with the porn in the woods thing. Potentially. Have it happened to you? Finding porn in the woods? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> you're, you're really assertive. That I, like, well, did like you grow many up? Many times or? A couple times. I grew up in a small, you know, relatively rural town. And there was, you know, you could walk in any direction and find, you know, porn. It was also, um, I think that probably, I don't know, not to speculate too much on its, uh, where it's, it's, it's provenance. Sorry, did you just say you could walk in any direction and find porn? And I meant to say find woods, but maybe I said find porn. <laughs> well, say, this is a totally woods, different rural is. town than the one that I grew up in. <laughs> so, anyways, so I grew up in Pornopolis, and <laughs> no, just I, and it, the other thing it was on Highway 101, which in California is a pretty heavily trafficked homeless quarter. Um, and I think that probably homelessness and prevalence of pornography in the woods probably go hand in hand, not to speculate too much on who puts the porn in the woods, because I think that takes some of the mystery away. But basically what you're saying is the idea that masturbation will lead to a fallen life of living on, on the road is, is true. No, I think just people just, without bedrooms just don't have bedrooms to jack off in, so they do it in the woods. That's kind of more what a, I'm that's getting a, at. That's a little tautological, though. I mean, that's that's not exactly an insight. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I grew up in a town where you could walk in any direction and run into insights. So. <laughs> wow, so we got to porn pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> TTP, time to porn. <laughs> the new low. Basically, what I'm getting at is, is so we're going in a porn direction with mm. this comic, right? Mm-hmm. Like the next the next several pages is going to be 
I think that's hardcore. A, I mean, it's a comic, right? So yeah. there's got to be some hardcore sex in it. Exactly. I mean, I, I tend to take my time. In general, there's a lot of panels of nothing happening, but it's all leading up to <laughs> hardcore sex. Four panels. The only important thing them, that can happen right. in a story. There, right. There's not much point in doing it otherwise, is there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, af- after the, the trail that Charles Schultz blazed, you know, there's not really much where else for sequential art to go. So. I thought you were saying that the, dark, the, the, dark the, territory. the trail in pornographic comics that Charles Schultz blazed. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know. I see. And then they found him dead in the woods. Mm. And someone was Snapchatting his phone. So uh, I feel like we've done some really solid world building here. Uh, this, is, this, is, this, this role-playing game is going very well. We've done some really something-something. Yeah. I'm inven- envisioning all of this in Jesse's hometown. Right. The dead Charles Schultz in the words, woods with the porn on his phone. and the, Right. That the, is where these things tend to happen. The, ins- the insights around every corner. It's it's not that... It's not actually... I, my hometown is not that far from Santa Rosa, California, which is Charles, where Charles Schultz was, I think, both born and came to prominence. And Santa Rosa, California has, like, downtown has, like, you know enormous five you know four or five foot statues of woodstock the bird and snoopy and all and charles schultz memorial park and stuff schultz i don't think i'm saying that right i'm supposed to say schultz schultz does charles schultz memorial park above his body in the woods it's yeah it's <laughs> they just built it out of like paper mache from porn they found nearby <laughs> it's a it's a first they needed to blow up a really big balloon and then start did you ever do like making a paper mache? Oh uh, yeah, like you make a mask by mask by paper yeah. macheing around a balloon and then popping the balloon. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they, uh, we're a little out in the woods on this one. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently, I'm just. It's all about the tangents tonight. Yeah, for me, I guess for sure. Uh, <laughs> How, how's it, <laughs> how's this feel for a stopping point? You want to take a quick? We break? might need to rerail this train if we can find the tracks from here. Yeah, well, in any direction you walk, yeah, you can... you've run into the train right. tracks. We'll be right back. That was true too. <laughs> yeah, I know it's yeah, right. It's totally, you. but seriously. And we're back. Do you think that um, at some point we can stop saying "and we're back" every no, time we come back? Never, never. I feel like people will figure it out. <laughs> that I, I, I worry. You know, if you don't say that, uh, a song plays or something, and then you start talking, and they're like, "Oh no, they're talking again." Is, is are they back? Is it or part of the song? am I hearing this? Yeah, is this, is this a really weird long talky break in the yeah, song? Yeah, or like you a know? sample. I don't want people to be you know disconcerted like that. I don't want them to feel like you know they don't really know what's. What's going on structurally? You know, people. You say that after the last section of conversation that we just had. <laughs> well, it's like, think about it. Podcasting is a real young art form, right? And uh, think about the very early days of cinema. You know, uh, narrative structure and cinematic structure were very simple and straightforward, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, uh, jumps. You know, and, and and like cross cut editing hadn't come along, fast cut editing hadn't come along. Even the language of you know staying you know on the same side of the 180 degree line, you know, that was all you know. People really had to be walked through the 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 sort of process of watching a film until we could sort of develop this cultural awareness of some of the more sophisticated editing techniques that became cinematic storytelling. So podcasting, I figure we're at the same sort of time scale. It's basically like 1901 right now. And if we don't basically, you know, explain everything that happens on the podcast before it happens, people are just going to be terrified. They're they're just going to go back to listening to commercial radio. It's, you know, it's... 
Well, in that case, why didn't you say which episode number this is at the beginning? I, I did at the beginning. You said what date it was. Did I not say it was episode 15? Because this is episode 15. All right, there we go. All right. You've been <laughs> sitting on that this whole time. Yeah, man. We've had lots of arguments about I guess whether we, we need to say the number every time. And I was just relishing the entire time. I guess. Is it important that these be listened to in chronological order? No, no, really. <laughs> I think I think there's probably some continuity, but I don't think it's... Like, I don't think we ever, like, uh, leave anything hanging that, like... like Occasionally Speak we for yourself. Well, <laughs> I don't know which uh, is this a penis joke or a narrative continuity joke. I was gonna bring it around to a your mom joke, but then it just seemed like too much work. Yeah, like that wasn't we, a your mom meta joke. It really just yeah, did no. actually seem like too much work. Yeah, no, yeah. no. I'm I, I'm trying to figure out if there's like a corpse in the wood angle on this now, like like hanging in the woods, like leave it hanging. Right, an exquisite, like Charles an ex- exquisite corpse in the woods. Tra- Charles no Shorts. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> How you doing, Matt? How you doing? I'm I'm great. <laughs> I got a quarter of my diet Pepsi finished. I couldn't be better. <clears throat> Matt's going crazy right now. We're having to restrain him. He's had quite a lot to drink, and I, by which I mean diet Pepsi. Yes. Um, what were you pointing? At? I, I can I have can I have another beer? You gave me that. Are you gesticulating? Oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You were, I liked when you were talking about the movies thing and you punched the mic. That was great. Yeah, I was I was really into that. I was excited about that dumb wandering joke. I uh, I do want to spend one more minute on Matt's work just because I actually really do adore it. Not just as someone who you know knows Matt and is friends with him, but um, I, I you can just go and see it all on the internet. There's literally no reason not to go to mattbogart.net. Matthew Bogart. Matthew Bogart. Bogart. Net. However, we'll, we'll, however we'll put it on the blog that. post. We'll put it on the blog post. Matthew Bogart. Bogart. Yes. Yeah, Matt. I was going to say actually, I want to come back. I'm going to interrupt your coming back. Yeah, come go. back to my own thing. <laughs> I thought of the best possible unlikely schoolyard taunt. In fact, like. Like if you were a skinny kid uh-huh. and people wanted to make fun of you about your weight but couldn't because you weren't fat, they could turn around and call you non-fat Bogart. And they'd be like, yeah, take that, you person with a reasonably acceptable standard of you know societies. So, so it's a play on fat and mat and Bogart and yogurt. Yeah. So it's like non... Maybe they could call you non-mat yogurt That's and bring it... Oh. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, because I never would have understood that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you were saying something of that substance. Do, that does it? definitely sound like a childhood taunt, though. Yeah. But to thought... put that amount of work into yep. non-fat, bo- non-fat, I can't even not pronounce my name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> See, <laughs> I try to keep up with Josh when he's riffing, but he just sometimes just goes places I can't even just, my mind just doesn't work sometimes that way. Sometimes it's just, like I, I, I do like a multi-track riff. Um, not multi-tack drifting. Uh, Still lost. It's a, it's a, I, I don't even totally follow it. I need the it. notes it's, for this it's, podcast. It's, it's some meme on the internet, uh, like a train doing multi-track drifting. And so it's got like its front wheels on one set of tracks and its back wheels on the other. And it's like sliding like, like a Tokyo drift sort of thing, except for it's a train on train tracks. And then there's a guy like multi-track drifting, <gasps> having a big anime sort of. Is this a real, real thing or is this, this in is your a real head? thing? I don't know okay. what the source of it is. It could be some actual is straight face track drif- drifting anime? some kind of like audio recording thing. No, no, it's 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 like literally as far as I can tell, it's well, I mean, you multi-track drifting could I guess occur. 
but that's on, it's on not Sink in Tapes. reference to that? I don't think so. I think it may literally be just some anime where someone thought it would be radical to have a train drifting on two tracks and someone react to it. I'm assuming probably in a sort of satirical, lighthearted sense, but maybe really serious face. Maybe someone was trying to like do like the ultimate like stepping it up from like rally car driving to train rally car driving or something. I don't know. I have no idea. I really I feel like I should have done my homework on this one now. But in my defense, I didn't know I was going to bring it up until you said riffing. So, <laughs> yep. So you were saying something about Matt about liking his work. I think. What's going on? Where am I? <laughs> um. I, yeah. I really no. sucked the wind out of that. I feel terrible now. It was like an a bomb went off in my head. <laughs> Nothing left. D- dust. There's. A, I'm trying to reconstruct what I was thinking before he went off on that tangent by like tracing outlines on the walls of the the whatever you call it. Holy cow! A bomb shadows burned into the paint on the outside of walls. Yep. Yeah, that's my brain right now. How's it going? <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the best conversation I've had all day, but I've mostly been talking to my cats. <laughs> Can we have the cat on the show next week? Oh, totally. That'd be good. That sounded like the worst insult, and I just, like, just, <laughs> I just met one of you. No, it's fine. I'm, I'm, it's like I the was, biggest I'm burn I've ever delivered in my life. <laughs> it did, I, I have so low, like, expectations for the show it didn't even seem insulting to me that's the kind of thing i would say about the show while i'm, I'm, I'm willing it, yeah. to take better than cat yeah, I mean, better. That's, that's a reasonable standard of success i've right. had conversations that are worse he did say than better, talking to a cat so yeah, so, yeah I mean, true. i'll take I'd, it i'll t- i for one will take it accepted wholeheartedly it's just wow my favorite panel of oh it's the end of the world is in the first page and it's about five sixths of the way down and i'm trying to reconstruct it from memory because it was obviously it's the first page i read and so it wasn't i wasn't just looking at it but there are two large frames that have um the female lead whose name i've forgotten um oh, looking uh, up yeah. at, at the the news being projected on the clouds above them or being projected up above them and then looking him in the face with a shocked right and there, it, there is such an uh, an economy of line work, but it's so amazingly expressive. I think it's really, really striking. And it, and it, it was, it was, it even it rivals stuff later in the comic where you're being doing these incredibly lush illustrative techniques of when they're um, they're in the big drain pipe thing, and there's this intense, like leafy, you know, beautiful. Uh, Reminds me actually of my hometown, where where uh, you Poor can office. walk in any direction yeah. for a couple of minutes and you find a uh, drain pipe. Yeah. But but no, it's re- it's really beautiful and evocative. But but to, by comparison, the, the 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 panel I'm talking about on the first page is is so sparse, but it's so perfect. It's dead on with this kind of like dawning horror and shock and fear that that she's feeling, but understated and and just really like poetic almost well, not not to overstate this but it really was like wow i i would i would literally f- like hang this panel on on my wall in a holy frame. cow well thank you i mean that's that's the trick is i you always try to make it as as few lines as possible but 
um, as few lines as you can get away with. I think if anybody ends up going looking for that panel, I'll say that it's not on the first page, but you oh, should. Okay. <laughs> that's a trick to try to get you to read every page, and then you can figure out what he's talking about. <laughs> but, thank you. I appreciate that. Right. It's it's the girl is wide-eyed looking right into the camera with her mouth hanging open a little bit, and it's just very, very, just no, not, not one single line more than you need to communicate. It was really striking, and I, and I wanted to say on air how like amazing I thought that was. So, See, I was going to say, it could use like five more lines to give her just like a wicked sort of scar to give us more of a sense that this is a real, this is a strong female character, like some sort of like backstory there that we get a flashback from like... You know, maybe uh, yeah. Everything has to be gritty now, didn't you? Get the memo on that. <laughs> I guess, I, I, especially I, comics. I right? guess. I guess we could say briefly that the name of the comic seems not to be uh, a, a joke per se. I mean, oh, it's the end of the world is actually sort of like the thematic, you know, opener of of the. It's would you? It's kind of like a romantic eschatomedy. <laughs> eschatomedy. Yeah, and that doesn't really work very well. Eschaton. Eschat. I don't even no, know what word you're trying I'm, to I'm trying to do a portmanteau right of eschaton and comedy. Eschaton? Eschatology? The, I don't know The that study word. of the end of the world? Uh, oh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, wow. Eschatological That's stories, like, you know. Totally a word I should learn. Oh, it's a great word. <laughs> uh, right. Well, as we said, we're supplying all the raw material for this comic and have been since the exactly. beginning of the podcast, Exactly, yeah. See, I'm seeding it. So when it shows up later, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, no, yeah, you're right. It's... Um, because it's right before the smash, what I would call the smash cut to the title of the comic, right. the end of the epilogue, which I love too. It, it's tall, it's so cinematic to just kaboom the full the name of the comic is at the end of the what what you would call the prologue, I guess. Right. What, yeah. What, what, yeah. what Jesse's talking about is like the the first the prologue of the comic, which is about twenty two pages, is the story of this, this this couple that are they like each other and it's difficult to tell whether they're going to get together or not. And right about when it it seems like they're about to get together, they learn that the world is coming to an end and neither one of them know how to process that and it's it's meant to be i i don't know i guess i don't want to cast a light on what impression i want people to get from it but just go for it go crazy (laughs) boss them around well i'm just kidding no i mean i like i don't i i probably shouldn't say what i want it to be it should be able to speak for itself but um yeah that's what jesse's talking about uh, yeah, there's a whole there's a whole conversation to be had about how much um, uh, influence one can or should wield on how people take something. I mean, some people like David Lynch are really angry to even be asked what any symbols like symbolism or or over you know. Uh, uh, under the surface meaning is going on in their work and they say it's the entire point is is for the impression that you take away from it to be your impression and to say anything about it would be dictatorial and shitty in that way to to the opposite end of the spectrum where people are like you know what you you kind of get what i was going for and you kind of don't and it's actually would be better if you understood where i was coming from and this and stuff like that and you know i think i think there's depending on the work there is arguments to be made for anywhere along that spectrum sure. i think um, well, and there's there's all kinds of things too. Like, I mean, one of the major plot points in that comic is this this uh, two litering, where the characters fill up a minivan full of empty two liter bottles of soda, and then open up the back hatch and spread it all over the pavement. And if you were to ask me, I mean, I, I guess I can say, if you were to ask me what that means, quote unquote, it means I did that in high school. <laughs> like, <laughs> but like, if it means something else to you, I. 
probably shouldn't have told you that what it means is right. that it's because I did that in high school because I'm, I'm robbing you of that. Well, it's a nice thing in the story because it's left as such an unstated thing. I mean, obviously this is meaningful to the characters and obviously you can sort of derive a, okay, this is some sort of prank with some sort of backstory mm-hmm. with this, this teacher dude, but, but the story doesn't specifically go into it. And it's kind of nice that it's just sort of left there because that feels... Uh, very naturalistic, I guess, to the to the way you know. If you have a shared history growing up with someone, you have all those things that are sort of just built into your relationship. You know, little things you know about running jokes, points of reference that you wouldn't you know you wouldn't turn the camera into Bob. As you know, we once had an argument about a two liter bottle when Mister Henderson. Yeah, it's like you know. So I I I, I enjoyed the fact that that was part of the story that didn't necessarily come out and explain itself. It's just more like, okay, well, this is a thing that's happening. This is part of how they're reacting to this whole insane sort of situation. Uh, yeah, exactly. And the, the more that you can get away with that, the better, in my opinion. But um, it's always difficult to know when the <laughs> the reader's just going to turn on you and say, I don't understand anything that's going right, on. Right, you're in just this talking, comic. you're disappearing into your own navel a little yeah. bit. Like, are you just writing this for yourself? Like, that would be the extreme of that. But no, I thought, like, that, like Josh, I think that worked perfectly, where it's just like, this is just cut from the cloth of somebody's life. Mm-hmm. It's not, it, it, it's not over or under explained, and it's not so oddball that you wouldn't even understand that oh, this is just this sort of like sense of humor that people have or this is the sort of prank they might play mostly when reading that part i couldn't help but getting a just getting a little pulled out of it just because i'm like god how many panels does he have to draw all 200 <laughs> empty soda bottles in because it wasn't just one yeah <laughs> And that's and you know it's because I'm super anal. I'm just like, was this like clone tooled a little bit? Nope. Every single fucking bottle was drawn drawn by hand, as far as I can tell. There's a I did use every I'd use every trick in the book though. I did a Google SketchUp model where I clone I made a two liter bottle and cloned that a million different times (laughs) and then just traced it. So it looks hand drawn, but I still I still cheated. The difference between that and and just like if you're drawing a crowd, you might just like clone the same clump of the crowd over and over again versus in after you've illustrated a clump of them or whatever versus like cloning them in the model you're working off of and then drawing every single one by hand based on that is I, really really huge difference to me yeah I, I also thought it was really interesting how you used that same page seven times in a row yeah that was pretty <laughs> <It> really, surprising <laughs> i had some weird browser errors around that time but i don't think it was related yes but well <laughs> But 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 more seriously, that is that is exactly why LARP Trek is the way it is. Uh, I, I do this comic that's like the characters from Next Generation. The premises, yeah, I, I took a look okay. at it. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it, it's it's literally nothing but screenshots of characters from Next Generation in like medium close shots that I crop the background out of. And you know, I do a little bit of screenshot work. I'd say every ten to twenty strips I do, and I do a strip in the best case, like 12 times a month. So like every couple months I need to take some screenshots and crop them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then all the drawing is done and that's works really well for me. Cause I can draw a little bit, but I've never had the discipline to really work on it. That sounds so nice. And, and it, it, yeah, it's, it's funny though. Cause like, you know, hard work expands to fit the container, I guess. Like, so even though I've got this really simplified thing, I still like, there's times when I'm like, fuck, I'm going to have to open 17 different, ping files and copy them and paste them and resize them that's going to take like 10 minutes and it's the saddest fucking thing because it's like come on you know how but uh but yeah i i, I like that that strip would not exist 
if I had to actually draw those people, uh, which is a shame because I'd probably, you know, improve my human figure drawing a whole lot if I made the effort for some reason, but I also get hand cramps and spend eight hours on every strip instead of like a half an hour to an hour pasting up maybe. I mean, the writing is as time consuming as the the actual pasting together, but it's really literally as close as you can get to pasting on a computer, I guess. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that, that that I'm not joking when I say that sounds so nice. Like, the, as simple as I can get it is how simple I want it to be. Because there's less, I mean, in theory, there's less work for me to do. But in actuality, usually it ends up like the simpler you, the, the more work it ends up being to try to make it simpler. Well, yeah, because it's not like it's just like, oh, well, if I had to draw less lines, because you still have to do all the thought, all the composition. Yeah. Uh, you have to get the lines right. You know, yeah, it's, so it's... Yes. So I, I admire that because Jesus fucking Christ, uh, I, there's no way I could like get myself to spend the time, even if I could somehow convince myself that the effort was going to happen. It's just like, I, I kind of have, I'm kind of bad that way. Like, like I like doing things up to the point where they stop being a total pain in the ass or start being a total pain in the ass. And then I'm sort of like, eh, you know, so I have a lot of hobbies a lot of <laughs> lot of avocations, uh, but uh, a lot of them don't tend to get too deep too quickly because it's more like, eh, okay, I'll go do something else for a year now. Well, it, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not I'm sort of losing where this popped into my head, but uh, it reminds me of the, uh, an interview I saw with Daniel Day Lewis, where people were talking to him about his method acting that he does and how he um, people often come up to him and say like they have such respect for the the amount of sheer amount of work that he goes into because he never breaks character and he'll stay in character for months and months at a time and he had sent something to the effect of like if I could do it any other way <laughs> I would do it like I envy the people that can just have regular lives and then come onto their day job and give this amazing performance it's like I have to do it this way and it's terrible and it's <laughs> grueling but it's the only way no- I know how to do it it's like I am not a good actor <laughs> And I, I feel the same way sometimes, like I'll end up spending forever trying to get the perspective right on something. And I'll look at a comic in which the, the perspective is just flat and there's just one line indicating a horizon. And I'm like, if I could do that and make that look good, I would totally do it. But I'm not there yet. There's, yeah, there's an artisanship to the, yeah, it's, it, there's an anecdote that I've forgotten almost every single detail of, so it's practically useless as an anecdote. But a famous painter, say Picasso, spends some exorbitant amount of money, say millions and millions of dollars, on another artist's work and says, there was one line in it that I just loved, that just blew my mind. That one line made it worth every penny. Mm-hmm. And it didn't even necessarily like the entire thing, but there can be so much expressiveness and so much and so little that... Um, that yeah, I can see what you're saying, and I, and I'm I'm the same way. And when I'm working on something, I feel like I, I just don't have I can't pull it off. You know, on the first attempt, I need to like work it until it's as good as I want it to be. And I mm-hmm. and I incredibly admire someone who can just like like step up to the plate, swing, hit a home run, and and then you know jog around the bases. You know what I mean? Um, uh, <coughs> I think. An interesting example of both extremes in one person would be Don Hertzfeld, who has an incredibly simplified style for character d- design, mm-hmm. but does an incredible amount of work in the animation and layering and textural and in-camera effects he's able to do in his work and stuff like that. So, um, Or the late, great Charles Schultz, who right? I mentioned earlier. Like, Absolutely. I saw... Uh, um, uh, oh... Uh, 
I'm blocking on his name. I saw someone give a talk that was saying that it, essentially people feel, feel like that they can just step up to the to the plate and draw like peanuts, sort of like, I don't know, uh, Kathy, where it's a wiggly line and it's very simple characters. But they don't realize that he spent decades just drawing and drawing and drawing like he's an incredible draftsman and the reason his line is wiggly is because it's a physical condition you know it's not a an artistic choice it's not being sloppy it's that he can't keep his line from being wiggly and uh yeah it's 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 the same sort of thing though you've got this enormous amount of uh effort put into making something look as simple as possible right (laughs) well (laughs) speaking of uh you know, really sort of straightforward stick figure comics. Right. Um, there was all that stuff that happened with uh, with John Campbell. With John Campbell, right. There was indeed. I, I'm going to say, in fact, why don't we take a quick break and then we'll come yeah, back. Yeah, let's and, step and away and come back with the, the John Campbell the Campbellian mythos. That's, good. that's, that's a, a tough one. That's it. <laughs> isn't. All right, we'll be right back. <laughs> And we're not back. <laughs> well, we can't really I, I, subvert that paradigm, have, Josh. Did I understand correctly what the idea was? Is, is that, <laughs> no, you did got I do that right? Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, okay. For, you hit it out of the park. Okay. This is not <laughs> a podcast. This is the long version of that song. <laughs> or yeah. voices in your head, perhaps. Right. You're watching a, a, a silent film. Hey, here's an idea. Because I never talk to you except when we're recording the podcast. We yeah. can just have conversations about how we should do the podcast on the podcast. Is that pretty interesting? Oh, that'd be good, yeah. I thought that maybe we could um, do more of the little the other podcast bits and use them as bumpers. Oh, the, 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 the little goofy ones? Yeah, and we could have like the kind of like tuning a radio static, like so you found the wrong station, and then you come back and you get to the right station. We could try that. Something like uh, that. Uh, 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 because I feel like we're going to run low on music at some point. Not that I don't love the music just as much. But we, we get more positive feedback on the. Um, we could we could try and do that. My 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 only on bits, my only on moment of pause there is like if we run mm. low. But I think part of that is just a reflection of the fact that we never really tried to put them out in volume previously. So right. so we could because we got a bunch that we recorded uh, after the last podcast that has established. That's kind of what made me think yeah, that it yeah. could be done is because we yeah. sort of got into a groove and I felt like we could have just gone for an hour and just made. 20, yeah, so maybe we'll try. It. Maybe maybe things. maybe that'll happen. That'll make my, my comment about a song all the more confusing if what came before this wasn't a song. Except this is still part of that song. This is an extended bridge. <laughs> there used to be a drum set down here, and when I said a good joke, I could walk over and play yep. a rim shot. Which pacing-wise is great. Yeah. Tell a joke. Stand up, walk away. <laughs> wait 15 seconds, clomp, clomp, clomp. And then, and then we would discuss how a rim shot worked. Right, and uh, and why it shouldn't be called a rim shot. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> the, let let me let me say the first difficulty I run into talking about this John Campbell situation, and it's that at one point during what has transpired in John Campbell's kind of public life over the last several months, John Campbell, I believe, made a post uh, on tumblr or somewhere that said um one of the things i've been struggling with in my life is that my gender identity has been really complicated and to some extent came out in saying i i it's more appropriate for me to identify as female the problem with that now though is i can't go back and find that post and find out is is that something that was 
do I refer to John Campbell as a as a she? I've right had now, the exact same problem. I, I've I've seen people people using she as a pronoun. I've seen people using he as a pronoun. It's hard to say if the discrepancy is meaningful as an argument that it's ambiguous in terms of what John wants, or if it's just ambiguous because most people just have no idea. And so we're defaulting to, you know, and there's nothing pronoun. to reference because where we're currently at with this John yeah, I guess, I guess situation we is for, that John has taken everything yeah, we, off we, the internet. We, we should say just as a quick right. catch up here for uh, anybody who's not immediately like, oh, like John Campbell. Well, I think the catch up is what I want to go into here because okay. it's the whole story is what we're going to talk about. But I feel like I can't even start the catch up if I don't even know what. Yeah, no, I, 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 I we, hear you. We can just say that, you know, we intend to call him or her whatever by whatever he would or he or she would prefer. But since sure. we don't know, if we make a mistake, we're sorry. Exactly. Yeah, this we is, mean no disrespect. This is, this is operating out of ignorance of what John's actual specific preferences I, are at this point. And, and, and it's weird because in any other situation, I would feel really this would be a really easy question to answer because even if there's any... I, I feel like if there's a modicum of reason to believe that someone would rather be identified as a she, we should just identify them as a she. Why the hell not, right? Sure. Even if that person is in the middle of a having a crisis or per, like an identity crisis or anything like that, if someone says, call me she, I'll, I'm happy to call that person she. But at some point, it becomes... It, it, it gets into a gray area because in, at the point where I believe, that, A, that I can't even remember John's, like sp- exactly what John said in that scenario, I can't look it up now and find out what John said, and see, it was in the middle of, of a period of time where John was saying things um, that were not that that were meant to solicit a specific reaction from people or to trigger a certain mindset or you know thought process in people. And so, at what point is my own convincedness that that was just part of a like a, a long con? Do, do I just not even bother saying she? Like if I'm only one percent sure that John wants to be identified as a she, should I still? Yeah, if you call can't John tell, if you can't tell if it was part of some performance art in which he was saying some things sarcastically, specifically, or something that literally to, was yeah. only pr- true for a day. I don't know. Yeah, so but it's it's it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard really, to know. really really hard. Um, I probably will call John he because that's how I've referred to John the entire time I've known his work so anyways i guess that's a story there's our great big stumbling disclaimer about uh potential offensive accidental misgendering one of many many difficult alleyways that i think that this situation raises for me personally but But so john campbell john campbell um, is john i i matt matt may have known about john longer than me but i've been a fan of john's work for a very long time for many years and um, I have uh, comics that John has done hanging on my wall in my bedroom, uh, some of which I printed myself and framed, some of which I bought prints from and framed. Um, I, I have always been incredibly enamored with, with John as an artist, and he uses comics as a medium uh, in, in such a deliberate way, and I think that... <clears throat> Talking about uh, how you can say so much with a simple stick figure, I think that like I, I would I would rank, and this is the highest compliment I could pay to a comics artist. I would rank John up there with Chris Ware in terms of expressiveness, and also in terms of having an incredibly dry delivery for the material he's trying to deliver, which is just a thin veneer over deep deep pathos. Um, in the same way that Chris Ware does that. I don't know if you... Are you Josh, are you familiar I'm with Chris Ware? I'm glancingly familiar with Chris Ware. Like okay. I, I don't know that I've really read 
incredible. Like the, I mean, I've been brought to tears by Chris Ware comics. Um, the uh, Acme Novelty Library, Jimmy Corrigan, Smartest Kid on Earth, yeah. uh, Quimby the Mouse. Um, it's all all of a of a piece with one another. But yeah, a series of just unbelievable, uh, you know, genre defining, medium defining pieces of work, and um, and and brought into the world with the same just obsessive meticulousness that I think that John Campbell brought to a series of webcomics called Pictures with Sad Ch- Pictures for Sad Children. Um, and, uh, and, and obviously someone who has suffered from like depression in, in a real way for a long time. Um, and so, so for years, years of just enjoying John Campbell's comics was kind of how I started. And, and, and there started to be more kind of aspects to it in that John would start to introduce really, really bizarre, like kind of fourth wall breaking stuff. Like all of a sudden the whole site would be taken over by Long John Silver's ads and there would be like a Long John Silver's <laughs> product placement in the comics and stuff. And... Um, and in the meantime, I'm like, you know, following him on Twitter and following him on Tumblr and things like that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's just like kind of like meta or like data humor going on to it. Um, and uh, gosh, I, I'm trying to remember. There's a, a sequence of events that's kind of started around a certain time. Um, I guess the the next major event in John's kind of public story was creating the Kickstarter project for sad pictures for children. Yeah. Which the is a, pictures uh, for sad children collection. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I, I guess before that he stopped doing pictures for sad children, like the series of kind of standard comics and kind of shifted focus over to the Tumblr where he would put just little sketch comics, but also like kind of weird oddball Photoshop jobs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we sorry you were. I feel like I've been dominating this conversation. No, no, I was. I was just agreeing with you. I, I haven't been as uh, a fan. I don't think as long as you have, and even when I have been a fan, it's been just. Uh, I'd stop by intermittently and say someone would link to it, and I'd say, "Oh, it's a good, it's a it's a good John Campbell comic. I can't wait." Mm-hmm. But that's I, I. I own a T-shirt, and I sent him a VHS copy of how How do you know if you're really in love? Um, and that's that's the extent of my experience with John Campbell. Was before that a this. Michael Keaton film? No, it's a. <laughs> it was an after school like uh, PSA starring uh, Jason Bateman and Justine Bateman and um, uh, oh god, what's his name from Cheers and Three Minute Baby? Uh, Ted Danson. Yeah, Ted Danson, telling you how you can find out if you're really in love. <laughs> <laughs> But that's which is so up his alley. Yeah, right. All it's three like, of them. They, yeah. it's a fan. It's nothing like having I mean, a brother no, and sister tell you. Oh yeah, <laughs> to, like, to get something like that. <laughs> yeah, but that that's the extent of my experience with him before this. But yeah. and I, I'm yeah I'm at the same sort of level. Like it always, uh, always since I was born. Uh, for many years, I've been familiar with pictures for sad children, and it's one of those comics where. Uh, I'm terrible about reading comics regularly, so there's like three or four web comics that I actually follow on a daily, weekly basis, and then a whole bevy that I come to in binges. Yeah, and, totally. And, and with pictures for sad children, um, you know, some of them I sort of catch up on and say, "Oh, what was it, what was going on narratively? What were you know, what were the jokes?" And pictures for sad children is always like, "I'm I'm emotionally prepared to binge because <laughs> because it's always it's yeah. it's such a, a wonderfully effective you know." affective with an a uh yeah. comic you know that like his writing is 
just so so economical and so evocative and so just like weirdly you know it, it, it it's it, it's very clever in the way it manages to with very few words evoke surprising sort of feelings and things that that, that that feel a little bit off from what you would expect from you know it's like it's the opposite of a gag a day comic i mean the individual comics work very well structurally but like it's all about sort of evoking sort of a sort of philosophical or emotional sensibility in a way that's really kind of amazing for you know what could dismissively be oh it's a stick for your comic but it's like you said, it gets a ton of effect out of just very simple figures and very simple, you know, you know, a, a dash for eyes instead of a dot to express one of a number of nuances emotionally in a, you know, tiny little character. And and so I'd always like I'd always known the comic as that like comic that I read when I'm, you know, really when I'm emotionally prepared <laughs> right. to read a bunch and I'll catch up on on several months at a time. Uh, the more- yeah, and it's it's hard to put a word to the exact tone that he strikes with the comic but there's it is a real thing and you kind of have to go into it with that mindset this is going to be just heartbreaking for people that are discovering these comics with this podcast because (laughs) we haven't said that that you cannot go read these comics anywhere there's 10 years of these comics we're talking about and they're gone from the internet if you didn't see them evidently you missed them and it's one of those things where, like, we don't know how this is going to play out eventually. Because what the, the the recent big event as sort of a capstone to basically a weird several months at right. least, a couple of years, uh, is that he uh, he he basically abandoned his Kickstarter project uh, by posting a video of, in fact, him burning like 127, I think, of the mm-hmm. printed books uh, as sort of a declaration of. Uh, you know, being done with participating in capitalism, essentially. I mean, it, he he wrote a very uh, a long manifesto on the Kickstarter page, along with his video and the burning of the books and whatnot was a very effective, you know, image of sort of you know a, a statement, a protest uh, that also managed to piss a whole lot of people off because a lot of people were like, "Hey, what the fuck? You know, I paid for that, and why are you burning it?" And uh, but in the process, of that he also yeah he took down like. Almost all of the stuff he'd ever posted on the internet over years and years. And yeah, yeah. If you so even leading up to that, he had started creating like Tumblr posts that were just like a long empty space, and and taking things down here and there. And if you go to John Campbell's Vimeo page now, which had some I I thought really splendid surreal little videos yeah. he had made on it. It's just now it's just every video is just a black frame for the length of the original video. Um, leading just to, just, to, just to prolong this conversation yet further leading up to that, even before the Kickstarter, what, what you mentioned about the videotape reminded me, there was a point w- which he kind of issued a call, like anyone who has any Michael Keaton videotapes, right. Will you please mail them to me? <laughs> and it was funny because it came to me that I, I heard, saw that in a moment where I was just, for space considerations in my studio apartment was getting rid of hundreds of old videotapes I've collected over my life. And I had just been like, no one wants them. You can't sell them. You know, even in weird little indie video stores in Portland, Oregon don't want them, but it's so much like plastic and just raw material to just put in a landfill. And it's like, these were, I paid $24 for them. <laughs> I felt like this has to be something to do with it. And, um, and I went through mine when he said that I'm like, I don't think I have a single movie with Michael Keaton in it. But he said, uh, so I sent him, I sent John an email. I was like, hey, so 
I don't have that, but I here's the videos I'm about to throw away. I will pay shipping for any or all of these that you want. And I just listed every single video I was about to throw away of, you know, over 100. And he was like, wow, that's really cool. Um, here's a list of the ones I want. It was like 60. Like, he actually gone through and picked <laughs> wow. the ones. He, so I just, like, boxed them up. And, you know, I was like drunk and kind of in a weird mental state when I was doing this. And I'm like, I'm just going to throw some shit in there too. And so I like, because he's always had such a thin veneer over how personal his stuff is. And it's, it's, you know, that I just felt like an instant kinship. And like, I'm putting these things in a box and mailing them to Chicago. I I can't remember right now, but um, I'm just going to like put, like there was a couple things that I was like, this is some old personal memorabilia I just don't want anymore. And it was like a like a handwritten letter from a girl from when I was in high school or something. And I'm just I'm just going to put this in. <laughs> so I ended up sending him <laughs> what was already a really weird box to be mailing a stranger on the internet. Become you know orders of magnitude weirder by the unwelcome inclusion of personal effects. But That's I just great. decided to do it. And and um and so I sent him and I was like, hey, you know, here's your tracking number. You know, that's it. And I didn't hear anything back from him, but. Um it turned out he'd been soliciting uh, those Michael Keaton videos for what was the first of, I think, a handful of very difficult to describe kind of art projects online, which is that he made a kind of alternate history narrative of Michael Keaton's life that yes. was a multimedia. I, I need to go back to Michael Keaton, uh, his, his project. MichaelKeaton.net, which yeah. maybe, I don't even, I assume it's not up anymore. Last, because last I heard it was on. still up, but okay. I haven't checked in the ensuing week or so since. And it uses clips from Michael Keaton's movies, from his life. It uses a strange Mr. Rogers I, crossover I, I thing, have, I have comics. A, or I have a strong memory of reading through it uh, when I found out about it uh, a few months ago, I guess. Right. Um, I think there was a Metafilter post about it. And I remember going and reading through it, not quite knowing what I was getting into, but like, you know, I, I, I like sick pictures of sad children and I, I, I figured, you know, let's do something interesting. Okay, let's see what this is. And I remember really enjoying it, but I have this sort of abstract sense memory yeah. of really enjoying it. Uh, that I feel like I need to go back and watch it again, you know, read through it again. Right. Because it's gotten, it, it just <laughs> exists as this, like, you know, sensation in my brain at this point where I can't even tell you what the content is. I just and remember isn't, being isn't really that taken amazing by that it. someone can create a piece of art that does, has that effect on yeah. you and, oh, from such an inane premise? <laughs> wow. That sounds so up my alley. I'm surprised I never heard about that. Um, if it was, if it's still up, it's at michaelkeaton.net. And, um, and I don't know. It's hard to over. It's it's easy to overstate. I should say because it's it's so like something. So, the, someone who has their own taste in something might see and say like, "What the hell is this? <laughs> this does nothing for me." I can totally see that and sympathize with it. But for whatever reason, I was like, "This is brilliant." <clears throat> but that was the first of what I thought was a kind of a trend away from drawing stick figure comics, which is where he started. And in fact, within the series of stick figure comics, it started out as kind of a storyline, right? It was Paul who was a ghost, and it's every episode, you know, every comic he drew was a continuation of a storyline, and they kind of got less and less of that. He started bringing in the weird Long John Silver, who, you know, several other things he did like that. And got to the point where updates became really irregular. Uh, and the last thing that was posted on, that to my recollection, that was posted on Pictures for Sad Children was like a fake full-color like brochure design made really shittily 
put together in Photoshop for a ghost train that an like a really old couple had like run ride our ghost train. It's definitely haunted, you know. And it's like some podunk, oh whatever. And, it, and it's like very hard to describe. But I was like, I I feel like I'm not quite with it, but I still get love that he's doing something and breaking the genre a little bit. That's fantastic. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so it. it, it at this point, he puts up a Kickstarter for a book and confusingly named Sad Pictures for Children, whereas Webcomic <laughs> had been named Pictures for Sad Children, right? And it's a collection of uh, mostly of comics from Pictures for Sad Children, but also some other stuff from the Tumblr and some other interesting things. Um, <clears throat> and um, and puts it up on Kickstarter. And do, do you remember the... Kickstarter going up? Do you remember coming across it? I wasn't aware of it. While it was on. Yeah, I didn't see when it went up. I, I, I some of this stuff that happened with it, I, I heard right. of. So he he um, <clears throat> the, he, of course the the description is this like perfectly self-effacing, you know, this is you know garbage, whatever type of thing. And there was a you know a, I thought a really interesting video that went along with it and stuff like that. But some of the reward tiers were really interesting and and part of like. Just a perfect example of why I love John Campbell's. There were reward tiers like hundred and like or whatever. It's eighty dollars. I can't remember exactly what those numbers are. I will use this eighty dollars to take a homeless person out to lunch. Uh, you know, two hundred and fifty dollars. I will um, find someone who sells DMT, buy the DMT, take the DMT, write a comic about my experience taking the DMT, and mail you mail it to you <laughs> and th- things that are like really like you start to think like is this stuff that you can do on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but i'm like that's awesome of course i had no so little money at the time i had to back it at the lowest tier which was a copy of the book in the mail which i think was 20 dollars or 25 dollars so a signed copy that was the minimum reward tier and uh it, so that was what I, what i backed it at and um and then some strange developments started happening during the course of the Kickstarter. And this is where I think you, Matt, you and I started talking about it a little bit because I, I thought you had knew him as a comics artist. Well, I, I did. Well, I, but I didn't know any of this had gone down until I think you told me about it. And then when you asked me to come on here, I actually read all the oh, details sure. about what, what had happened. And yeah, he, uh, um, well, you sort of summed it up briefly, saying that he he wrote this long screed, saying that he's uh, taking everything off the internet. He's uh, he doesn't have the money to ship the the remaining books that he's yet to ship. It seems mm-hmm. like he shipped like two thirds of them at least. Um, and that if you want for the people that didn't get books, you should contact the my fans and ask them for their copies or ask them for money to ship books to you because I don't have. That's what I'd be doing anyway. I'd just be asking my fans for that money. Right, and it's. I mean, there's a lot in that in that article in that uh, essay that he wrote, but uh, that's. Do you remember before that happened? Before that that point, there was a there was an earlier post where he said, "I've been pretending to have depression." See, that's. I, oh, I, I, I think, yeah, I, I think that's when I sort of became aware. Like, I, I didn't forgot. know about the Kickstarter itself until that happened, and that sort of became a thing on the internet. And right. Uh, yeah, because because it was really interesting because it was interesting to me that there was this variety of reactions. Like partly, it was interesting to me that so many people credulously took that as, "Oh, hey, look at this big lying hoaxer is finally admitting to his big lying hoax." Overwhelmingly, where it's like, that was how yeah, people and, and it. It, yeah. 
I, I looked at it, I was like, how could you possibly fucking believe that this is a straight-faced admission of a con about... Like, this is like, to me, so clearly a satirical send-up of the idea of the absurdity of just faking depression for, you know, sympathy and profit or whatever. Because it's like, it, it's like, have you ever read his fucking comic? Right. Like, like, I, like, I right. mean, have you ever known anyone who is depressed? Yeah, right. that, that's the thing. I mean, I, I can, there, there, there's nothing to me implausible about the idea of someone writing something emotionally heavy without necessarily specifically having been in that place. I mean, I, I had that, I, I've written songs that are, you know, plenty dark. Sure. Uh, without them being anything autobiographical or anything like you know, it's it's totally doable to you know work something that's not you know fundamentally talking about a bad experience you had. But but there's there I feel like there's so much sort of thoughtfulness and depth and nuance to Campbell's writing in his comic strip that I I find it hard not to relate that to okay this is this is coming from a degree of experience and a degree of self reflection on this you know actual you know personal struggle stuff. And and so yeah, the whole oh no, I was just pretending to be depressed because you know. And I think it had legs partly because it's such a perfect little sound bitey meme ready. You know, not meme as we understand it as like image macro thing, but, but like meme like outrage. like specific yeah. idea that can just get passed around really really quickly. Is this guy has been getting rich off his depressed comics, and he here he is admitting that he's been faking it this whole time. Yeah. Right? Um, well, and it's not as if his comics, although they were called, you know, it has sad in the title right. and often the characters are having a very difficult time emotionally. It's not as if his comics are dependent on, they're not autobio comics. They're not dependent upon sure. the author being depressed in order for you to enjoy them. Oh, sure. so it's not like all the readers were hoodwinked by the fact that it's like, oh, now that I know he wasn't really depressed, I can't enjoy this comic. Yeah. Before. I mean, if this comic happened to be written by someone who was a robot, They'd still work because they're just really they're effective. Sort of, although I would argue that they couldn't possibly have been. Written well, by I, I, I do not. I'm not seriously positing but, the existence but no, you're, you're of an emotionless right, comic writing robot. Maybe it shouldn't um, take anything away from the comic, even if it somehow were true. I guess. Well, I mean, like for example, I enjoy Stephen King stories, but I don't believe that Stephen King has actually been haunted by vampires. For example, he's like, I mean, he's he's got his, he, he certainly had his demons over the years, but. I think mostly he's an effective horror writer because he happens to be able to have that space well. And, and, and by the same token, I think there's plenty of people who write stuff that's emotionally effective without necessarily it being a translation of their personal emotional states. That's one of the, I think, real interesting things to think about about, the, about his entire corpus is that I, I'm not even positive that that's true because I think that you have to. I don't think Stephen King would be able to write effective horror if he wasn't haunted by some demons. Not literally well, he, by actual demons from hell, but you know what I mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, like he, he famously had serious alcohol and drug problems, right. but those grew in part in tandem with his career. I mean, when he was first writing in a shitty little mobile home with him and, and Tabitha as you know, college students, as far as I know, he did not have a serious drinking and drug problem at the start of his career. Um, and that's something that actually sort of developed over the course of his career and, and certainly informed some of his writing. And he's written a lot about that in retrospect. But Sure, but I think I think he is wired in such a way. You know what I mean? Maybe. maybe. Um, I don't know. One of my favorite quotes from Stephen King is, um, people think I'm this horrible monster, but I'm not. I have the heart of a child in a jar on my desk. <laughs> It's a misquote. And then I'm not literally quoting him on that, but that's the gist of his. Yes. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, just that's that's one point I thought this conversation could get to is, I mean, do, do you have do you feel like someone can, Matt, do you feel like someone can create a piece of work that evokes a specific 
deep felt emotion like that without having coming from that place? Or is well, that maybe an unfair way of asking it? But where things come from, like I, I, I'm certain that John Campbell has been depressed. I'm certain that I mean I'm certain that all of us have been have felt uh, deep sadness at some point, sure. whether it's clinical Just depression, that's constant different. euphoria. But I'm I'm the moment of <laughs> I'm sure Stephen King has seen things that really frightened him and that uh, has occasionally frightened people, you know, himself. But I mean, it's it's always so difficult to say because usually when you're sitting down and doing the work, you're far from experiencing the emotions that you are trying to portray. And like when you're really depressed, you usually can't. Uh, create the volume of work that John Campbell has created. Right. One of the symptoms of depression is that you have no motivation to do something like that. Right. Yeah, and if Stephen sure. King were as haunted by demons as his the, his stories portray, you know, he can't he can't create he can't craft things in the way that he does. Um, so yeah, I mean, everything comes gets pulled from life experience in one way or another. Well, and part of it is too. I think it's part of life experience is your experience of life in interacting with others. And, and so certainly you can draw from your own experiences and your own emotional states, but you can also draw from, you know, observed states. I mean, I feel like as much as anything, most of the particularly emotional, like songs I've written are more about observation of people and culture than they are about like specifically my, hmm, yeah. you know, uh, uh, emotional life itself per se. Another thing, just you, because I think music is a really interesting example of this is you're called upon to, not just, I mean, and I think especially this this is the case with a huge band, like, you know, name a band, everyone from Nine Inch Nails to Coldplay Hooper. or whoever, um, are called upon just not just to re-perform the work, but re-perform it fr- with the emotional impetus that created the work, right? Like, if I'm going to see a band and they have an incredibly furious or just heartbreaking, like, soul-destroying song, like, I don't just want to hear the song. I want the performers to be in that moment because I'm in that moment from the song. And so, and yet that puts the performer in a place where they have to be or pretend to be, maybe, that angry every time they perform it or that just torn apart emotionally every time they perform it. It's a really weird thing because, like, there's that element of performance... Um, in the uh, sort of element of almost of acting in in right. musical performance, it's really it is a weird and it's something I've thought a lot about because I don't tend to be a particularly I don't know emotionally productive uh, person necessarily. I, I don't I don't tend to have strong you know outward emotional states i you know it's like i i like like i've i've written angry songs i've written sad songs but i don't tend to be like oh this song is sad i remember when i wrote this song i'm sad now it's like you know so it's it's i remember it's like an affication if you were gonna do that yeah well and and i think it very much kind of has to be to some extent if what you're gonna do is you know do it again and again every night for for 20 years or something and yet what i demand from a performer like that is that it be sincere do you is it i mean is that well, unfair it, like it, i really it, feel like i need the person to be feeling it's it when kind I watch of it. I, and is i think it? i think well i to, to an extent if you watch an actor you know acting you know on on a film or on tv or on stage you know when they're acting it's it's got to be a weird dualistic thing where on the one hand they're acting you know they're putting out a performance they know that they have to put this out there and they've memorized it and it's their job and they're really thinking about doing their job and for them it's it's got to have a huge mechanical component that's basically okay i gotta think about my timing you know it's 
but at the same time, they're probably not going to be able to make that work unless they can at least connect to some of that. Like, you know, someone who's literally a sociopath with no sense of an emotional state is probably not going to be a great actor in most roles anyway. I mean, I'm sure there's like, they, you know, some roles they'd probably be great at, but, but, you know, it, connecting with that, you know, and so I think, you know, same thing with the musician, uh, it was a really weird thing for me when I was first like starting to play. We talked about open mics last episode, you sure. know, seven years ago when we recorded that. Uh-huh. Um, and that was one of the weird, like there were so many things I discovered about performing music as the, in the process of starting to do it, like even going to open mics and realizing that I would write a song that, you know, I'd, I'd be maybe in a sort of a mood and I'd write a song or get started on a song. And maybe by the time I'm done writing it i've gotten out of the the mood i was in and now i'm more of an oh i'm writing a song i'm feeling pretty good about it which is kind of funny when you're like oh man this is a i'm gonna convey this emotion and then yeah i feel pretty good about conveying this dark emotion fucking a you know it's a weird arc just on the creative side but then getting up and performing it like i remember standing up and playing a song that was like a sad song that i thought did a good job of conveying this sort of sad state of mind but mostly what I was feeling when I was performing it was, you know, nerves because I wasn't used to even performing it. All, so I was kind of terrified to be doing that. And then afterwards, if it went OK, I'd be feeling sort of like it's a weird thing to smile when people are clapping about the sad song you're just saying about the sad thing because you're like, I feel like I'm not feeling like the emotion I was telling you I was feeling that you're clapping because I was telling you I was feeling. And so now I'll be like, yeah, that was really great. That sad thing that just happened. You know, it's a. It is. It's a weird fucking thing, basically. It's. I, I think that speaks to like the difference between like the surface layer and the structure of it too, because um, like I, I've heard Tom York mention that like when he sings uh, "Fade Out Street Spirit," mm. like that he has to check out of it. Like it's too emotionally draining for him. I mean, when I listen to that song, I think God, that's a beautiful song. But uh, he, where he was coming from when he wrote it, is evidently a really powerful place. It's really difficult for him to go. Right. So he just checks out of what the song's about, checks out and just does tries to technically perform right, it mechanically. well. Um, and in that case, he's just relying on, I, like I have no doubt that when they perform that song that it's emotionally powerful, uh, whether he's concentrating on the technical aspects of it or whether or not. Um, but he's relying that he, that they've created the structure, the melody and the way that the song progresses, that even if they just concentrate on the technical aspects, that it's going to have an effect, Hmm. which is similar to, I would imagine how, you know, an actor, you know, needs to, he needs to believe that he's, uh, that he's feeling connected. So he, he feels like he's, um, sorry, he or she is, is doing justice to the work, but he also, they also need to believe that the story that they're telling, that the character that's been constructed underneath them in the script is something that is, that has some emotional truth to it. Um, so they don't need to have that just real, uh, rest entirely on their shoulders hmm. in the same way that like I have, when I'm drawing a page, I have to like it, 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 it it's difficult. Like when you're singing, you, you might want to, um, try to make each line uh, emote a certain emotion as opposed to hitting a certain note. When I'm drawing a page, I'm tempted to try to make each line, um, you know, uh, express a certain feeling or get across a certain plot point when really what that should all be, uh, that should all be in place through the page design and the script that I've done in advance. And I Mm. don't, I, if, that that's where all the structure is in place. I'm, I'm sort of trailing off the end. Well, it's, it's, it, no, I mean, no, I, it's I, fascinating. Yeah. Cause there's, 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 there's this huge conflict in any sort of attempt to mechanically produce some sort of emotional content. There's this huge conflict between, yeah, the, the, the core actual emotional sense 
and the need to physically produce a thing. And, you know, like obviously if you're drawing and you're trying to draw something and you're trying to convey the emotion, you can't convey the emotion by literally flailing your arm around in syncopation with that feeling unless maybe you're Jackson Pollock and or that's a whole Ralph Steadman or something. Yeah. Um, if you're singing, you know, there, there's obviously people can sing very emotively, but at the end of the day, they're still singing. Like only, only in rare exceptions does the singing turn into an actual raw, uncontrolled non-musical thing mm-hmm. you know so, uh, uh, and obviously it be, used to be great effect but it's not you know the, the the typical view of music you know if you look at something like opera which people will describe opera as incredibly emotional but at the same time what an incredibly technically uh, disciplined form like mm-hmm. you know no one who is having an emotional breakdown as portrayed by an opera singer is going to behave like an opera singer no one is going to be like I am crumbling right now, and that's why I'm going to give this forceful vibrato for my diaphragm to fill up an auditor. You know, it's like, no, it's like obviously these are two fundamentally different, you know, ways of just physically being, mm-hmm. but you have to merge them, you know, to communicate, you know, artistically the thing that you're communicating within the realm of. So yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a really weird thing, and I think that's a conflict for anybody that's doing t- stuff artistically. It's like yeah, yeah you. You, you are probably going to be bound to spend your entire artistic life sort of constantly doubting the authenticity of your emotional products because you know you can't not know that there's this constant imposition of artifice in it. Yeah, I, I, don't, know that, I don't know that you can purely express a feeling and invoke that feeling in someone else in the exact same stroke. Maybe that's kind of the nut of it. Or it's, I remember. <clears throat> yeah, sorry, you go ahead. I I feel like it, the only sort of pure expression of that would be something very different than what we ever take in, which is you know just improvising on stage or on the street or something, mm. or trying to get yourself into an emotional place and then just see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in in most of the contexts that we're talking about, I don't think I think the planning aspect of it sort of puts a wall between the emotion and the audience. And usually that's necessary, but um, nothing is going to be just that direct link from emotion, from your brain into the audience's brain. Like, I want to say, like, I don't think, I've never more profoundly sort of had a sense of feeling like I'm trying to figure out if I'm a fraud, I would say, more than when I actually am trying to turn an actual raw emotion into like a song. You know, like I've had those, there's been a number of times where I've been like actively sort of upset in a mood, feeling down, feeling sad, feeling angry about something. And then I have an idea about a song and it's really hard for me not to stop and look at myself and say, really? You know, it's like, it's, it's hard not to be like, who the fuck do I think I like, I, I'm going to sit here and say, oh, I'm so sad that I'm going to sit down and see if this rhyme scheme and meter works. You know, it's, right. and it's a weird thing. Cause like there's, there's nothing wrong with reacting artistically to a feeling, but it's hard not to take the, 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 the notional concept, you know, maybe this is just sort of like a cultural imposition of the idea of rawness of emotional reactions. And it's, it's hard not to see the idea of wild unchecked emotion as its own thing. And then art as another thing mm-hmm. and feel like, the the connection between the two is some sort of betrayal of uh, one or both of those. Like, you know, the idea that, like, if I stop and think about whether or not this stanza works in this song about this thing I'm upset about, 
Am I really expressing, you know, this core emotion or am I exploiting it for the sake of, you know, showing off some, you know, clever product? It's, it's a weird feeling. It's a really weird feeling. And it's hard to it's hard to completely eliminate that, even if it's a useful way to produce something. You know, it's I don't know. Yeah, and I've even had the experience where where I feel like the idea of how to portray or communicate or represent something emotionally has infected my feeling of feeling the emotion in such a way that like oh, yeah. I'm like I feel really like heartbroken over something and I'm like this this would be a great moment in a movie or something. Yeah, and, and then, then you're really to, disgusted with Yeah, myself. you're like well and, and and you're like am I actually feeling as completely emotionally reacted to this as I am or am I actually sort of trying to siphon this am i am i goading myself into feeling right. sad and this is or a performance angry or from just for myself as the audience yeah which is a, it's you know it's weird i mean there's there's some value in some self-indulgent emotional role-playing you know as a sure. just a fucking human being but it gets weird when it starts to and it, you know i i get to the point where i feel like you know a, a broken window at a wto protest is a work of art because it's it has none of that and there's a one of my art teachers gave me an example of what they thought was shitty non-art and it was it was a, a artist who would take their shoes and socks off and then walk across broken glass and then walk across a canvas and the blood on the canvas would be the piece of art that they would sell and they would and she and this was an example to her of someone who just doesn't have any creative spirit in them and to me it felt like i mean i was a teenager and moderately anarchistic <laughs> at the time I'm like I have never heard of a more beautiful and pure work of art than yeah. what you just described because some, if I have that in my house I mean not that I ever would I guess pay money for that and although maybe I should Make a I don't DIY. know who knows I mean, you know. whatever but like you know you and you know exactly what the person who made that piece of work was feeling and you can connect with what you know that person was going through in that moment. I feel and like I don't Bruce know that how many pieces of, of I don't know how many pieces of art you could say that about. Well, I, I always think about the um in understanding comics Scott McCloud had a definition of art. Let's see if I could rec- if I can remember it. He said it was anything that wasn't done with the intention of procreation um, survival, or maybe that maybe it's just the two things. Hmm. He gave the example of um, he drew a, uh, a panel of a, a caveman running after a cave woman and saying like this is not art, like this is for procreation. And then and then a tiger jumps out of the woods and chase, starts chasing the caveman. Is like not art. And then the caveman runs up to a cliff and stops suddenly, and the tiger leaps and the caveman ducks and the tiger goes over the cliff and dies and it's like this isn't art this is survival and then the caveman leans over and sticks his tongue out at the tiger and he says art (laughs) 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 and i think there's i mean i've met plenty of people that hate that as a definition of art Hmm. um and i don't necessarily argue with them i mean you can decide what what you think is art and what's not i think it's up to you but it's it's not a bad starting point i mean the idea of things we do that we don't need to do in a sense you know is I, even that's flawed because I think that that a lot of art is because the artist has to. Well, okay, they, 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 yes. Do you, so I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I don't mean no. that as a whole other no, no, argument, no, 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 but no, just no, that even no, that's I, an imperfect. Well, no, no, and I agree, and I, I, th- I think, and I think to some extent, it's hard to define anything in absolutes rather than sort of look at where the overlaps of you know gray areas sure. sort of accumulate, but. Uh, 
I, I, I don't mean to say that it's invalid to suggest that art is something that is needed for someone to survive, but I think that's a level of survival that's different from yeah, sure. pre-technology survival. Yeah, you know. Granted. I mean, there's there's mental health, and then there's you know the bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I think it's more that bottom rung that maybe. Do you? Think I that, don't know. I think I think there's music that I've heard that saved my life, and I think there's music that I've heard that has saved the songwriter's life. So, and it's and it, it's it's sort of upsets the hierarchy of needs in that way. But well, no, no, that means you, you st- okay. So, so someone who needed to write a song to process something they're feeling to not be in danger of self-harm directly or indirectly uh is in a position to do that only if they're not literally dying of starvation like you know the guy who is collapsing for malnutrition may be suffering a great deal of emotional turmoil as well sure but he's still starving to death because he doesn't have food do you, you think, know? yeah, but he might not have food because he's the, well, um, maybe, suffering it, it, from such it, it depression. I mean, circular, they're interwoven, but that, I guess, yeah. is more the point. Not, not that I, not, not to, not that you're wrong, but that I think yeah. that they're interwoven. I, 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 I guess it's something that you could say. It's the idea of like if 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 someone is starving to death and you hand them a sub sandwich and a guitar, <laughs> and they don't pick up the guitar, it's not, or or, or yeah. Something like that. I make my argument for me. Think, 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 think it through. Think it through and decide I'm right. Because uh, I can't. I can't put it together. But uh, Josh, sorry, Matt, Josh, you were going to say something. Think it through and decide I'm right, Millard. <laughs> do you think that's related to John Campbell's dis- decision to? Do you think it's an effort giving all this up? Um, and like he says, divorcing himself from commercialism to separate what he does from his um, survival needs. Like the way he's surviving for the past ten years is by doing these comics, by making books and selling them, and he very, says yeah. he very much wants to like cut that in half and make what he does over on one side mm. and what gets him his survival over over somewhere else. Maybe right. so, yeah. I mean, he wants to untether them from one another. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it does seem sort of like straight to that point. I want to jump right back into the John Campbell stuff, but I, I feel like we need a quick break. Let's take a quick break, and I'm going to use the restroom too. Okay, All Jesse's right. going to pee. Hierarchy of needs. Hopefully, just pee. Yeah, no, just pee. Okay. Not that it's any of your business. Well, we I talked guess. about pooping last time, right? So you're no no longer allowed to poop since you've talked about it on the podcast. Yeah, no, ne- never pooping again. <laughs> One and done. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> And we never left. This is still a song. <laughs> so right, right, coming right back in, um, now that we have a little bit of scotch and I can really dig into this, um, the kind of the denouement, the John Campbell story is, is that uh, there, I, I think that John didn't expect the reaction he got to the post about depression. And one of the things that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way was he not only said that I've been faking it, but he listed a half dozen or a dozen other webcomics artists without their consent <laughs> Jesus. and said, these people, you know, I talked to these people about it and they're, you know, we're all doing the same thing. It's all a big con, basically. I've forgotten that aspect. And of course, those, some of those people like, I love John, but John, what are you doing? And some people are like, now I'm mad. Like, why did you do this? And some people are like, I get it, whatever kind of thing. So... But involving other people without their consent was kind of a weird edge aspect of this. But most of all, I, I think that it became such a huge thing online, such so much bigger than it should have, sort of, even, um, 
and was read at such face value by so much so much of what the reporting on it was the tone it took and the and the, and the a really weird depth of understanding reaction. Well, weirdly to me, I, I totally understand people having this sort of like credulous context-free reaction to it because like once you get like the further you get from the immediate audience the more you're going to get misreadings of something and the thing is the immediate audience for that is people who know john campbell's work and probably a lot of people who were like closely familiar read it and were like oh john's doing a thing i get it right you know and and i'm sure some people were like oh you know maybe not so much because i'm sure i think a lot of people like me were like this is obviously sort of meta in the sense that it's not saying what it's trying to exactly what it's setting out to say yeah it's saying something 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 else but also there's some maybe kernel of truth to it or maybe what is really incredible about this is that it evokes a kind of a dark suspicion that i think a lot of people have that like there be it's a con it's a put on the 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 person they either are identifying with or maybe they don't identify with but c is an artist who is coming from a depressed place has been doing this for their own gain the entire time yeah i think that it, it brings to light our willingness to believe that all of this t- depression in art is a con or yeah. is for pure money's sake and i think that's what's really interesting about it well and on top of that too we were talking about the idea of sort of being self-aware about your own turning of, you know, emotional or mental experience into art and right. some of the weird feelings about being someone. And, and so I feel like there, there may be a degree of that informing it too. And especially, you know, people who I've heard talk about like struggling with really serious depression, um, also talk a lot about, you know, how one of the fundamental things that's hard to relate to when you're feeling that is that depression is, you know, kind of a liar like that's one of the weird things about depression is your brain malfunctioning in a way where it's telling you all kinds of shit that is not really true but it feels true because you're in this off-kilter mental state and so even someone who struggles for a long time with depression is never going to be completely divorced from that sense of well yeah but is this actually you know me having some special problem or is this me just being full of shit you know right. is this me being you know worthless and lazy not being able to get off my duff or whatever the fuck you know yeah that, exactly is that is that that's an aspect of true depression is that your depression tells you <laughs> that you you're just a piece of shit who's feeling sorry for yourself and you're not really depressed you're just worthless um and and i think that that all is wrapped up in in that yeah that that communique whatever you want but yeah again i I feel like you have the people who know john campbell as like longtime fans probably read that and regardless of what their specific reaction was it probably resonated significantly with their understanding of him as a as a writer as an artist you know and them sort of at least being able to connect that with their sense of who he is and what his artistic work has been but then you take that and you step it out a, a generation to people who are hearing from other people this is going on and they're just sort of seeing it without the context without the understanding that okay this is a specific guy with a specific you know resonance to his oeuvre you know and they're just like oh well this is that's a bullshit thing to do why would you fucking do that you know and as you get farther and farther out there's less and less context and more and more just absolutely 
And, and I think that I think that one thing, and this is purely speculative on my part, but I think that one thing that John uh, miss or some, something that John underestimated was what the ratio was going to be of people who were in a position to understand what he was saying with that sure. to people the internet wide who yeah. were just going to have a fuck you John Campbell reaction to that. And I think that it, it, it was so much fuck you John Campbell came out of that so much in every corner. Um, you know, the Internet's a really, really big place. And I think John Campbell had a relatively big ar- uh, audience for a, for a independent webcomic guy. But co- that compared to the number of people who are ready to pick up a t- pitchfork to take down someone who has been pretending to be depressed for profit is, I think, was underestimated. Yeah. And so his immediate reaction to that was another post on the Kickstarter kind of series of of basically blog entries on the Kickstarter page, which is, I thought was an incredibly raw and honest thing, which is just like, you know, that wasn't understood correctly. Um, I, I There's a lot to the, that you can take away from that. I am going through, you know, not that this is what this is about, but FYI, like I'm going through like devastating, life-changing things right now. My roommate has been, you know, emotionally and physically abusive to me and now I'm looking for another place and my money situation is very bad and things like this. And so, which was another, I think, really amazing, compelling post that I think provoked a lot of thought. Didn't seem to get the same press coverage as the first one did. And when it did, it was like, you know, Kickstarter asshole backpedals or whatever, right? (laughs) And I think all this stuff is important context for what finally happens with this Kickstarter thing, um, as we've alluded to. But concurrently with this, um, a couple things are also happening. John does do the DMT that one of the Kickstarter reward tiers says he's going to do. He also, you know, writes the comic about doing the DMT, and I think it's an incredible like six-page comic. He not only sends the original to the person who backed it that level, but he also posts it as a PDF online, which I'm sure is unfortunately no longer online. Um, and it, you know, it's obviously a transcendent experience. He feels like he is seeing underneath all these aspects of society that we're taking for granted. Um, over the next few months, you know, people start receiving their, their Kickstarter rewards. Um, you know, I, I should mention that at this point, the Kickstarter project has been funded many times over and ended. And it's been John's responsibility to start sending out the books and sending out the rewards and has been. Um, I get mine. I get mine in the mail. Um, it's incredible. It's an incredible piece of work. A lot of it is stuff that has been on the website. But uh, it, it, the climax of the book is the last several pages are a, a comic that he wrote um, wherein kind of surreally a wasp bites someone's grandmother at their moment of death and sort of absorbs their soul and then people's mixed feelings about, well, what is this, you know, is the grandma and whatever. And the last page of the book is, you know, three quarters of an inch thick and has a literal, actual, physical dead wasp mounted within the book. And this is something that, of course, he's had to do insane, weird, you know, he's oh, had sure. to ask some people in publishing some weird <laughs> questions to get this book built in such a way. But literally has a literal dead wasp in the book. Um Hard to explain in a way that carries the gravitas that the thing itself does, but it's also weird and also not for everybody, whatever. Someone look at that and what the fuck is this person doing putting a dead animal in a book? It doesn't make any sense, sure. Um, so, but but at the same time, it's also... Um, Sometime we have to have a discussion about how, for a while as a kid, I was convinced that insects weren't animals. <laughs> Carry sure. on. 
Um, John continues, I think, to do DMT after this. Um, and, and, and not that this is a, a rug to sweep this entire event under, but I think that John is discovering that DMT is, for John, pulling away some uh, preconceptions he has about the world. And is, in his communication with his audience, becoming more and more abstract and more and more uh, coming from a place condemning kind of society in a way and capitalism and it's hard to disagree with a lot of that you know what i mean i i think that in and a lot of this comes up in john's final post on that kickstarter um is that someone who chooses to spend 75 dollars on a kickstarter for a book of stick figure comics is someone who's choosing not to spend 75 dollars potentially saving somebody's life and and um you know i I think it's important too to now that we've sort of set the stage of his uh, the troubles that he's had and the um and the drugs that he's done and things that he does not come off and when we say he posted a 2000 word post taking himself offline and burning all these books he doesn't necessarily come off as a madman no i don't think so at all he's very articulate and i would encourage you to if if you're listening to the, this post on Kickstarter is still online. Yeah. It's yeah. on Kickstarter.com yeah, that's one of the that to go and, and take a look at it. Cause we are obviously not going to be able to uh, summarize. The, yeah, but the no, it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's very lucid. I would say mm-hmm. it's, it's very, it feels very deliberate. It feels like a thoughtful piece of writing in the vein of something John Campbell would write, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Cause at the same time, it's also very provocative and, you know, it, it's. I the, think it context... unfairly gets written off as kind of ranting just because it's really long. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's ranting. I think yeah. it's just. Long. Yeah, I've read some long fucking <laughs> rants that are also <laughs> right. just like incoherent fucking messes mm-hmm. from people who are not communicating clearly. And this communicates fairly clearly. I mean, there's lots to agree with or disagree with depending on what yeah, you're going for. Yeah, and it's for. kind of layers on itself yeah. and it's sort of yeah, referential it, it, to everything that's come before, it's too. Of, it's not completely lucid in well, the, to someone just walking in from well, nowhere well, and I, reading I, it. But. I, I think it's lucid. I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, particularly crystal clear. Like, like I, I read it and even not having all of the backstories going on, I never felt like it had lost its track. I never felt like he was like, Looking up at someone saying, "Where the fuck was I going with this?" You yeah, know? no, like, the whole thing—it's more coherent yeah, than most coherent. of our conversations on this podcast. I would say, <laughs> for example, yes, um, it reads like someone if you sat down and you said, "I'm going to give up the internet. I'm going to yeah. stop talking to my audience. I have a few things I want to say. like. What is everything I want to say before I go away forever?" Yeah, right. um, uh, it reads like someone who put a lot of thought into that and did it in such a way that they know they're not going to be able to respond to the people's rebuttals yeah. or podcasts like this. Yeah, that's a good point that 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 a lot of it has to do with kind of anticipating the reaction and responding to the anticipated reaction. Well, it yeah. even starts like the very first line of it is suggesting titles for um, people's rebuttals to to this yeah. essay. <laughs> which I think, which blows my mind, honestly, is brilliant. Is yeah. it, that's the way to start that if you're going to do what you're saying you're setting out to do, totally. And, in, I mean, there's a section that I think we should say in fairness where he says, if you're reading this with the intention of summarizing it for other people, then fuck you. Wow. Right? Which is sort of what I feel like I have done also. But, yeah. Um, which else? is true and fair, I think. Yeah. You know, because especially because I, I think he knows how this is going to play. Yeah. And um, leading well, up to this also, and... Uh, Josh has disappeared for a second. I feel like I want I want him in on this because I think this is also one one more piece that gets that has been widely overlooked. We may have inspired him to quit the internet and you, just you and shut I, everything yeah. down. <laughs> uh-huh. 
We're still recording, right? Josh <laughs> is plugging in the computer here. <clears throat> you're speculating that you are writing your essay saying you're renouncing the internet and no longer going <laughs> to... Um, one, one thing that... that uh, just because I follow him, you know, lovingly on Twitter and and other forms of media up to the point that where this happened was before he did this, before he put this final post where he says, you know, this is the end of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he he had been posting a couple of things to Twitter that were talking about self-immolation and the history of people in protest lighting themselves on fire, and it, they were they weren't they were clearly not written in a sense that was like, hey, everybody, this is what's on my mind. They, But they were definitely, you know, like, did, did you know that only this many people have ever done this? And, this, you know, it's hmm. famously the Buddhist monks and protests of the Vietnam War and things like that. But it actually hasn't happened very often. And um, <coughs> I think I think we're, that was clearly on John Campbell's mind. For to who I, I have, I am in no position to speculate to what since that was a realistic plan of John Campbell's to do that. But I think the fact that John comes to the point where he is lighting his books on fire, the fact that he's lighting them on fire is significant, and, and that's where his mind was at in that point. And it, it at least crossed his mind that that is something to be done along with burning the books, which is incredibly obviously worrying as someone who adores this person as a human being, as an artist. Um, well, I, I think it's important to say that, um, which we haven't said ex- explicitly, is that um, this is a statement. It's not just a reaction that he's, um, you know, he didn't just disappear. Right. You know, he could have just as easily said, if he doesn't want to do this anymore, he could just not do it anymore. He could turn off his email address, shut down the ways people contact him, and he'd never need to worry about all these people who are trying to get books from him because he would never hear from them. But he didn't. He He made an incredibly long article in order to make, try to make a difference in the world in some way. Um, so I th- in or the same just way say the- where he's coming from. I mean, it's hard to ascribe motive to it because it's so complicated, but um. yeah. Well, I, 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 I want to say, um, um, I, <laughs> Fake, uh, I, I, I was going to say something. Okay. I wanted to say, uh, uh, the, the 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 I'm laughing now because we discussed briefly the fact that I actually paused the podcast so I could adjust something in GarageBand so it crashed. But then I was just going to stumble my way back in naturalistically and uh, and cover for it so we wouldn't need to edit or draw a note to this. But then I got really self conscious about my actual stumbling when I was thinking I was going to just naturally. The point is, I was going to say something about. Uh, um, I was talking about how I thought it was a very lucid statement, and I stand by that. I think I think that it was written deliberately and thoughtfully by him, and it doesn't represent him going unhinged while with access to the Kickstarter page. It was him very much writing a thing. You know, mm-hmm. it feels thoughtful, um, but at the same time, one of the weird things about it is it's it also feels like it's really obviously part of some sort of like mental or emotional crisis. And it's, it's a weird thing when this first happened, uh, this is like a week and a half ago, I think, uh, maybe two weeks ago. And, uh, and up talk apparently is what I'm doing. Um, hmm. there, there was a post on Metafilter about it, 
there was two posts on the same day, actually, basically right when it was blowing up because it was like this big internet zeitgeist thing among like, you know, web people and web comic people and whatnot. Right. And Kickstarter fail is the headline of a lot of. Yeah. Incredibly yeah. Stupid and it wasn't that bad on Metafilter. Fortunately, people posting about it were saying like, oh, a really weird thing is going on with John Cannon's right. Kickstarter, which was at least like, yeah, that's a fair. Yeah. But at the same <laughs> to time, say the least. Yeah. But at the same time, it was one of those things where like, you know, Metafilter does OK talking about breaking news when it's sort of like international or national school breaking news it does okay talking about it when it's like it's an event that like the size of is kind of undeniable it doesn't necessarily do so well when it's basically hey this person is having a breakdown because like what do you say do you say yes they are no they aren't they should they shouldn't they have the right to they are being you know like it's really weird to try and figure out what the okay place to have a random you know distant discussion like 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 you talked about the way it blew up on the internet is really sort of like, like, like back when he posted the, oh, I'm just pretending to be depressing. Like the way that expands is problematic. And I wasn't too worried about people on Metafilter necessarily being super shitty about it. But at the same time, how do you treat what might be someone having, you know, emotional crisis as breaking news? You know, it's not, right. it isn't, you know, it's, it's someone dealing with something. And I imagine there will be a post at some point on Metafilter about, you know, the whole situation with John. There almost but, couldn't be because there's almost nothing to well, link to. I, right? I would I, I would say either there will be something to talk about because there is some closure or eventually there'll be something to talk about about the weird gap that is the lack of closure. Right. But it needs not be like, oh my God, look what's happening right now. This guy's right. fucking losing it. You know, right. that's the terror. No, let's not do that. So um, that was my immediate experience with like, that's how I became aware of what was going on with it was looking at this and seeing these posts go up and getting emails from people saying, hey, I kind of know John. He's really, this is not a great thing to shine a spotlight on. Can we maybe not do this? And, you know, there was a lot of, basically a lot of people who cared about him saying, hey, I don't think it would be great for there to be a post about this on Metafilter right now when he's really dealing with some stuff. Maybe no. And then we were like, yeah, no, we, we agree. And we yeah, took this I, down. I think that it, it's been my experience that people in kind of my social circle who knew him through me just as someone who I, I really looked up to were like, oh, I guess that guy just lost his shit, right? I guess that guy, one person said, went full idiot. Wow. <laughs> right? So, but, but I mean, not not to condemn that person for saying that. That's, sure. that's just well, if you how, no, the, how the world saw it. Well, right? and yeah, if you have no context, it's just somebody doing but, something really fucking provocative and right. writing a giant essay on there. But people in kind of my my broader friend of friends circle who knew John Campbell were like, "This is really, really, really sad. What's happening right now?" Yeah. Um, and 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 so I think both of those reactions are there and real, and both of those those reactions are re- reasonable in their different contexts to what happened. Well, and I think it's, I think the other aspect to it, of it, right now it seems like we're witnessing, you know, some sort of breakdown, but it, it I think there's also the possibility, uh, maybe even likely that the breakdown occurred or, or the, the, whatever, I hate to call it a breakdown because that sounds negative. Maybe this is a very good some thing that's going to happen. Maybe this transition in his I, life I, I think is going to be exactly what Regardless of whatever valence sure. there is. Like but, it's definitely a moment of, a fulcrum, if it were. But this, yeah. I guess, were, as right, it were, if some, you will, some kind of pit, like, right. But sorry, the, but this crisis that, that this article could be, this could be the end of the crisis. Like hmm. uh, certainly, the decision to give up the entire your what seems like his entire way of life for the last ten years was an. And he even mentions it in the article was a very difficult decision to come to, um, and it seems like he's 
just reached the point where he said, okay, I've finally made up my mind about how I feel about all these different aspects of my life. I've decided what I'm going to do about them. It's very hard. I've done them now. Here it is. Now I'm on my way. So it's possible that he is, I mean, I obviously don't know him, but it's possible that he's not in as bad a state as this makes it seem. It's possible we're just getting let into all this stuff that's been going on for a long time with him, and now he's in a, in a place that he's a lot better off. Yeah. Right, the fact that he's able to express it in a way that we understand mm-hmm. means that he's on his way out of it, whereas right. it kind of puts us on our way into it. Exactly. In a certain way. Um, yeah, and, and I think I think it's worth uh, it's worth restating that, that the pressures of the Kickstarter project itself had some bearing on this in, in that he he obviously wasn't able to keep up with the demand on him for the books, to print and deliver mm-hmm. the books financially. Uh, Matt sent me a really fascinating article about someone who had a similarly overwhelmingly good and successful Kickstarter who had you know put her all of her time into fulfilling her promises on that and came out way in the red on it yeah. she had funded for many times what she had asked for right oh yeah right. I, I think people and, and and was and was financially crippled by it and if she had just not already had many thousands of dollars of cushion to of credit not, yeah to not <laughs> right to of credit like not not of cash on hand or anything right yeah she went but, five thousand dollars in the hole after a enormously successful kickstarter yeah. right um, right and, and and i think john i think we can assume from his life that just didn't have that and was and was to some extent fighting to to deliver on it I, he he makes a point of saying that the books the, the books he didn't send out were people who funded at higher funding levels and I and I think that it's a little shitty and classist to decide that those who aren't going are the people who aren't going to get your books but it's obviously those are the people who could afford to spend seventy five dollars on yeah. a Kickstarter well, and, it's a and really, I think yeah. if he's going to be deconstructing where our priorities lie as a culture I guess it makes sense that that's and obviously he chose the number of books to light on fire by the number of nagging emails he got that said, where's my book? Yeah. I, I mean, he, he has made the reaction to the Kickstarter part of his reaction to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's, it, that that is a, some part of it, too. It's true. I, I do think that that's it's a little bit off of John Campbell specifically, but I think that's an interesting point that I'd never considered with Kickstarter in that, um, it is. It does enable a whole class of creators to be able to do things that they never could before. And usually, the the dominant idea with Kickstarter is it's funneling all this money and all this opportunity into artists. Um, but it's it's both a blessing and a curse in that there's uh, you're throwing a lot of people like my friend, like John Campbell, like me. I've considered doing Kickstarters into areas that they are totally unfamiliar with dealing with large amounts of money and being expected to manage it flawlessly. Yeah, you like like you know who's not necessarily going to be super on the ball about managing logistics and projection of costs? People who don't do logistics <laughs> for a living. Like my right. little brother actually has a ton of experience as an actual like corporate like VP level logistics guy and he did a Kickstarter for a board game he made. And he actually did okay on it. And I think he's in the black at this point, well after the fact. Mm-hmm. And there were weird extenuating circumstances. Like his original budgeting was really solid. But then Hurricane uh, Sandy actually mm-hmm. played a direct role in fucking up his supply chain. Um, but, you know, this is a, he's a guy who like really he knows business. He knows supply chain. He knows budgeting. And even he got surprised by this. And then you take people who are like not – in that realm and they're primarily just like, you know, their experiences specifically with like creating art or whatever and say, okay, now you need to create a T 
tiered reward structure to entice people and incentivize people to support you at higher levels. And so everybody's like, oh, well, let's throw on some T-shirts, let's throw on some hardbound books, let's throw on whatever. And it's really easy for people not to think, am I making more money off the higher tier than I am off the lower one? Because if not, don't fucking do it. You, you, you have to be insane to say $15 gets you a copy of the book that I can probably print for less than $15 a unit. $25 gets you a copy of the book and a T-shirt that I also have to acquire for maybe more than $10 per unit at this volume. And then it just keeps going up. And yeah, people can ruin themselves by, you know, it's the old joke about like, yeah, we're losing money on every unit. We'll make, but it, we're, up in we'll make it up in volume. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, it doesn't work that way. You have to have a way to make it up in volume. And people just like, it's, it's a weird thing. And people don't account for like the tax implications. Like you have to, if, if you're raising any amount of money off Kickstarter, you have to go and lop 25% off like, immediately to say that's what I'm going to pay in taxes on what I'm pulling up. You have to lop off 10% on, you know, Kickstarter commission and, you know, uh, yeah, Amazon or PayPal transaction fees. So you're basically, you're coming away with like 65% tops net on the actual gross Kickstarter sum. And then you have to pay for all your fucking rewards. (laughs) So like people just don't do the thing you promised to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Kickstarter has some advice about like budgeting, but you know, at a certain point you can't stop people who are excited about doing a thing from not knowing all of these realities and not factoring them all in. And so it's, yeah, it's really easy for, and the more successful you are, the more your loss is amplified if you didn't calculate this stuff. So it's a really weird fraught thing that like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've thought occasionally about the idea of doing a Kickstarter, but I've never had a thing where, like, I this is something that I need money from other people to do, and I will actually make money off if I try and do it. So it's, like, never happened. Uh, but I've thought about these ideas a lot because it's like, Jesus Christ, it seems like you could really fuck yourself by trying to do this this thing. And so, yeah, stories of people finding themselves sort of despairingly realizing that they are actually in trouble because they successfully raised money or especially if they raised more money than they expected it's like it's a weird thing you don't really and people are not sympathetic you know like right i mean the the fantasy of the kickstarter scenario is you take out all the middlemen right you take out all the managers and producers and but you know would money you don't have to get you corporate pre-approval to do a thing connect the audience with the artist right yeah but you're right that 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 leaves there's a vacuum of like that implies someone has to do all those things. things. Yeah, right? there's, I mean, there's plenty of bloat in the publishing industry and in all these other industries that Kickstarter is sort of subverting. But there's plenty of uh, meat there too, I yeah, suppose. Right. People that are that you don't realize that all these people have jobs that are somewhat necessary yeah, until but, you're doing their job, your job, their job yourself. Exactly. Uh-huh. The bloat. The, the bloat is the vig on top of the function. Like middlemen, it's easy to, to bitch about middlemen because you know it becomes rent seeking in a lot of cases, and that's shitty. But that's rent sinking that was justified initially by the fact that they're doing something. It's the person who steps up and says, oh, that complicated bullshit? I can take care of that. You just, you know, give me 5%, you know? And, and yeah, it's like, it's easy to just sort of think, hey, I can get rid of that, that, that 5%. I can get rid of that, like, you know, cut. Yeah. And not realize... I have to do all of that stuff myself now. Yeah, it's like, well, it's a, or not even realize that it's something that needs to be done. Yeah, like there's, and by the Kickstarter's nature, there are established companies and people that have departments that know what they're doing that fund on Kickstarter. But in general, Kickstarter's nature attracts amateurs, people who are trying this out for the first time that don't have the history to be able to do it without uh, funding, like uh, from crowdsourcing or crowdfunding. Um, but like me, like I've. 
I've published one book, I've self-published it, and I'm looking to publish a second one. And the more I do it, the more I realize that, you know, I haven't done this nearly enough to be able to do this flawlessly. The more I realize that it's, 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 it, it has the potential of being a disaster unless I do an enormous amount of research. And I think that, uh, sorry, um, I just kind of lost my train of thought there. It, it, it's something, I, I think it basically can, there's something very enticing about the empowerment that comes with the DIY thing. Like Kickstarter is enormously attractive to someone who wants to do a thing and doesn't want to have to deal with some weird big corporate bullshit structure. Like, you know, it, it's kind of like the, the, the way that music has gotten significantly more independent over the last 10, 15 years as the Internet has basically made it possible to self-publish. Like you aren't necessarily going to make any money doing it. But you can at least do it. Like, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to be a self-publishing musician, what the fuck were you going to do? Like, you know, print CDs and then sell them in the back pages of a magazine? Yeah. Like, whereas these days, like, you can be a totally unsuccessful musician who at least, you know, a few hundred people have heard of if you've, you know, just just done your basic, like, if you've got anything listenable and you put it out there and people are like, oh, hey, yeah, I kind of like this. And, and two or three people really like it. And they tell 10 other people. And like, you'll never, ever make a living off that. But you've still had this success that was not even possible 20 years ago, you know, with the exact same set of circumstances. And there's something very attractive about that idea of just self-publishing, of the DIY thing, of being able to say, you know what? I believe enough in the thing that I'm doing that I'm going to put it out there and you can support it if you care about it and i think that's all really valid and it's a very exciting thing but yeah it's got these pitfalls that are not obvious well and i think that's a that it's a good point that just about anybody who does anything creatively will know that the first time when you're first getting into it you're kind of terrible at it and you can delude yourself into thinking it's going pretty well but when just about everybody when they look back they realize they did they had a long way to go and i think everyone who starts a kickstarter or does a project for the first time has to realize that that's probably going to be the case with this too like if this is the first time you've published a book it's probably going to go badly um, and maybe you can build in enough cushion into your funding model that you've got enough room for it to go really badly before the whole thing falls in on itself. But most likely, whether you're releasing an album or making a video game, um, if it's the first time you've done it, it's got a, it's going to have going to have a lot that falls apart to it that you're not expecting when you go into yeah. it. There's also like it's kind of a people feel like it's going to be a magic bullet sometimes is a thing that's tricky. And I think that's part of a thing where not everybody goes into it does have that. Yeah. Self-awareness. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people who go into it, go into it specifically thinking, Hey, this is at last I can do this thing. I feel like doing, I, I helped uh, uh, a, a friend of mine uh, who was a musician. I played with a bunch over the years. Uh, we were both in kind of our first like rock band together years and years ago. Um, and more recently he decided with his current band to, to do a Kickstarter for an EP they wanted to do and they had a target and I kept sort of trying to talk him down. Cause like I'd sort of like, I'd never worked with Kickstarter per se, but at least like I'd been familiar with it. Um, and, and with projects that had worked and ones that hadn't, I'd sort of like kept trying to talk their budget down. Cause like the thing is with Kickstarter, if you pick a target and you don't hit it, you failed. Mm-hmm. If you pick a target and you do hit it, you succeeded. If the target is lower than you wanted, but you hit it, you succeeded and you have any money at all to work with. So it's like, right. I kept saying, well, it's, you know, can you cut out this? Can you cut out that? And, and we did the Kickstarter and I put together a video for them. You know, I borrowed a, a, a Canon, 5d mark ii from my boss and Mm -hmm. and shot him a little video based on an interview and some footage at a show they played and you know it came together fairly nicely and i feel like we put together a good pitch and the targets were pretty reasonable but like my question the whole time was like but who is gonna 
pay for it. Like, and the thing is, they've been playing in town. Like, he's been playing in town for years. The band that he's in has been playing in, together for a while now. They're all really talented. They're they sound great. I really like them. Uh, they've got a bunch of friends in town. They got musicians that they know, and mm-hmm. the musicians that they know are willing to throw ten bucks at the Kickstarter and whatnot. And a few people can throw more. But the thing is, if you're going to try and come up with like seven thousand dollars as a really local band. Who is, you know, like who's going to, people don't go to Kickstarter. Like, you know what I feel like doing? I mean, I, I don't want to say no one does this, but in, <laughs> in, in mass, you know, in large numbers, no one goes to Kickstarter and says. caveats, Millard. Well, I'm just saying, oh, okay. Like, like, like you, you random, random, random person from Cleveland. Right. What I feel like doing today? I feel like going to Kickstarter and searching for Portland, Oregon bands and funding someone who I've never heard of. You right. know, it's like, it's not. You know, there's there's lots of gimmicky stuff that gets a good grab on Kickstarter, but I think being a band is a really hard one. Being a band, no one's heard of. Okay, I'm gonna sit down and listen. You're to in a pretty crowded video. room. Yeah. Great. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. It's very it's very crowded. Trying to get, and, people, trying to get other people's attention. Yeah. There's not a shortage already. of music. There's no one's like, oh fuck! I wish there was a moment. band. Right. I wish there was a <laughs> band somewhere. I just really need to hear some music. Why doesn't someone invent you know? music? Exactly. <laughs> so it's really hard. So like, I'm kind of like, well, do you know people? already who are going to give you seven thousand dollars because if not seven thousand dollars is kind of a big ask you know and and the first kickstarter did okay but didn't get there and then they rebooted and uh i re-edited the video by replacing a title card and a bit of voiceover to change the number and that was all the edit we had to do which was nice um and then they redid it for like a lower target and they hit it and you know they just cut out some of the fat that would have been really nice things to do you know, they, they really wanted to be able to pay some local musicians to session on it. And mm-hmm. instead they're like, well, you know what? We'll just do it without. And we'll ask a couple of favors, but keep it minimal, cut a couple tracks off. And they did it and it was fine. But it was like, it was hard because these are smart guys. These are guys I know who we talked to, a, we talked about it a bunch. And even with all of that, even with a lot of reality in there, it was still like, it's hard to target. It's hard to know what you're going to get. And I feel like a lot of people feel like they're going to go to Kickstarter and it's just going to be magic. Yeah. You know, instead of being like, it's going to pay dividends based on your existing network or your really amazing gimmick. Like, you know, if you could really blow the random Internet's mind, then OK, maybe you can count on raising an extra 10 grand. But like short of that, if you're a band, it's really hard to do that. What yeah. are you going to do if you can't spend money in the first place to both sure. these minds? In which case, why are you doing Kickstarter? If you don't you know? have a wristband that makes you telepathic, then you're probably going to have to figure out a fan base. Yeah. And it's it's hard. It's it's and that I think that is a hard reality for people who might otherwise be practical to deal with, not knowing. Like you you go into it and you've maybe got this sort of delusion that it's just going to work, and that I think can be a really crushing thing. I mean, I don't think this necessarily plays too much into Campbell because, again, he was successful in the the fundraising section of his thing. But well, like in a way, I mean, if it, if you were trying to pick a sure bet, if you're trying to back someone on Kickstarter that you thought, well, this is this is going to come to fruition, picking John Campbell has been making webcomics successfully for oh, sure, almost yeah. a decade. Like, this is like a known a, quantity. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, definitely going to go I'll fine. I'll get my book. Yeah. But then, you know, people ask for refunds because they didn't get their books in time for Christmas and his shipping uh, funds disappeared, shipping the refunds, and everything sort of went downhill until he was stuck with this terrible problem on his hands. Yeah, and... And I think it's I think it's really easy to overstate the I mean, yes, I think I think that one of the core problems that we ran into here was the logistics. He just didn't he you know, he posted pictures of his bank and PayPal accounts. It was like, this is how much money I have right now. Um, I have these books. I would love to get them into people or I don't know that he said I would love to get them into people's hands. But he said, you know, the books exist. The money doesn't. 
you know, people who are making a huge amount of hay on online reporting sites are about how much I'm just like running to the bank with like giant dollar sign bags of money over my shoulder uh, are just, you know, not, that's not what's happening here. So I think that like, obviously that comes into play with what, what fell apart here in the situation, but I don't think that it's the whole story. I think that, I think that if, I think the, the the money and patience and time and things could have come together if if it didn't end up being a situation where John Campbell had a certain artistic voice and a certain mode of interaction with his audience that didn't scale. I think that that the the seeds of this the destruction of this project were sown the first time he he made a post that said i have been pretending to be depressed well yeah the entire world came to it and and just ripped apart what was happening there and i i i think that i think that john campbell got kind of spiritually destroyed through this process and 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 not to say that john campbell didn't come into this entire thing with with major uh lack of coping skills for something in this scale, which I think many of us would. Um, and not to say that, you know, there wasn't like logistical financial problems that come into play there. But I, I think that a big part of what fell apart here was um, John wanted to do something for a certain audience and the thing grew out of control yeah. because there is an audience for something as like unique and special and personal as pictures for sad children was. Uh, and John had sort of found unexpectedly, I assume to him, uh, an audience that res- with whom that resonated and was able to start doing this for a living. Um, but that, that didn't scale that, that, that yeah. w- once something became put under the microscope of the entire internet, you know, the, in the days before the internet, something like this could grow so big, but no bigger, right? There's a lead time on a newspaper story. There's things, you know, magazines wouldn't report on this until after the whole thing had been long blown over. But now because there's this, this firestorm can just appear in one day. Um, the entire thing got burned up. The The entire thing uh, was unsustainable because it was something that was only ever meant for people who understood who John Campbell was. And once once it, it made its way out into the wilds of the internet, it became such a bad negative feedback loop. And it became so destructive to the process of him trying to deliver what he wanted for his fans that, that the entire thing became such that he gave up on the internet or humanity as represented through the internet and, and basically disappeared from it and said, this is what this comes to. This is the ultimate expression of what's been happening here is that all this stuff on fire and me disappearing and taking everything down from every single presence I have anywhere on the internet. Do we know if, um, uh, his reaction to the blowback against his post about, um, faking being depressed was, do we know that he was upset about that reaction? Not necessarily. I mean, he 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 wrote a, a deliberate response to it in mm-hmm. a way that that you can tell that it got under his skin in a way, because he it addressed really directly the blowback. Mm-hmm. You know, it was within days of the original "I've been pretending to be depressed" post that mm-hmm. he wrote, "I've been pretending to be pretending to be depressed," mm-hmm. and. Um, 
And I don't think that that was part of the plan. I really don't. Because I, I, I'm just not certain. Because I know a certain amount of what he did uh, and was known for was, for lack of a better word, like messing with the audience. Totally. Absolutely. So there's a decent, uh, uh, having not read his reaction to the blowback, I, I feel mm-hmm. like there's a possibility that maybe when it became so enormous and the whole world started writing him negative emails, um, not having read his reaction, it's possible he thought, oh, this is fantastic. Like, this is the best thing I've ever done. Look at all these people that hate me now. Like it's it's possible that that let that it, he was that it steamrolled over him and caused him to re, you know, recede from the internet entirely, or it's possible that it's unrelated. But I haven't sure. read his reaction post, so I don't. Well, I can't really tell. D- I think that you're right in a sense. I, I again, I think that his his second post, his second big viral post. Mm-hmm. I've been pretending to be pretending to be depressed. Uh-huh. Where he responds to the critics of his first, I've been pretending to be depressed post mm-hmm. is incredibly personal and is a real last gasp for connection with the people who mm-hmm. are reading his thing. And he never says, I'm sorry, I, I misled people or I'm sorry that this has come across the wrong way. Right. But he does say, you know, my life is not great. And, and I have been struggling with some sh- of this shit my entire life. And, that that didn't connect, but there's I, there's no question in my mind that by the time John Campbell is shooting a video of him burning the books that people have paid him money for, and that I mean really as 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 much as I want to be an apologist for John Campbell in this situation, as one as I, much as I want to take it aside, there's no question that people paid him for something and expected to get something w- within complete reason and are being punished for reasons that have nothing to do with them. Yeah, and there's by something, not getting their there's something and above being, and beyond by not being able to ship face, and actually right? making a point of saying, hey, fuck you, you're never going to get this. It's, I, it's, I, think, I think given enough time, he could have shipped, and I think that he just had given up. Well, and I, Yeah, and I think to some um, extent, like, he could, like, if we're talking logistics, he could have handed it off to someone else and let them figure out a oh, way sure, to have sure. people, like, you know, pay again for shipping. But, and, Matt, I, I think but, you're right, and I think that by the time he's shooting the video where he's like, here's me putting another book on this giant pile of burning books. I've mm-hmm. put one on this pile for every email I've had that's nagging me, where's my book? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he is making one, like a deliberate play to, to, to go out with the internet hating him. I really, really do. I don't think, I don't think he, ex- he wrote that post and shot that video expecting people to get it. I think he wrote that post and, and put that video up as someone who is, has been suffering from the internet backlash to such an extent that he says, all right, well, the internet backlash is all that's left. Yeah, and, so it's sort of like I an internet that, version of suicide by cop in a sense. Absolutely. It's deliberate and, provocation. And that's why I think the that the friend of, of mine who like put a, you know, sent me a message on Facebook that's like, looks like your, your homeboy went full idiot on this or whatever, I totally understand because I think that's what John Campbell wanted to create. I think he wanted to create 200 blog posts that were like John Campbell fucked up at Kickstarter. He's, in, he's been written up in Business Week. He's been, I mean, this is a huge thing at this yeah. point. And I think that it was totally a sort of artistic self-immolation like he'd always wanted to do in that way. I think he says somewhere in the post, I can't find it right now, but that he says, like, this is as loud as I know how to talk, to yell, or as loud yeah. as, yeah. like, the, yeah. the, the biggest noise I know this how to make. the loudest noise I know how to make. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, this kind of goes back so to what we were talking about I, earlier with the idea I don't think there's the any of... question that he was... He was he didn't expect to, to, what he wrote about the problems with our society to actually land. 
I don't think he expected Business Week to write an article that said, like, this guy has some good points. I think he expected Business Week to write an article that said, this guy fucked everyone over and is an, and, and is an asshole. I wouldn't be I surprised, though, totally if he expected he was... people to read the, to do what we're doing now, to read the Business Week article and then to read this post and then to sit there and think about it. It's like, well, wow, you know, what, what are the merits of his points that he sure. makes in this post? Yeah. You know? So it wasn't just an, an effort to say, like, you know, an Andy Kaufman, bad wrestler type type thing to say, like, let's see how many people I can get to hate me. It's like, let's see how many people I can get to hate me to draw attention to these ideas I have. Yeah, sure. Um, Maybe. Yeah. It's 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 hard to say. I, I def- mean, I think he has done that. He has had that effect. Yeah. Um, and I, I, it, I was going to say. the effect of just turning the entire Internet against him. We yeah. were talking early about the idea of being self-aware about, like, emotionally driven expression like the idea of 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 sort of feeling a certain amount of self-doubt or you know self-loathing is maybe the strong end of the spectrum but anyway that that, that sense of, of keen self-awareness that you I were taking self-loathing is part of it um, really a, a, a strong sense of awareness that you were sort of exploiting your own emotional self mm-hmm. in the process of crafting uh external product like, you know, it's it's not that it's necessarily even bad to turn an emotional reaction into something that you put out there, but it's hard not to be really self-aware about the act of that and about the process of that. And the more time you spend thinking about doing the thing that was motivated by this emotional, like this maybe pure emotional moment, the more it feels a little bit solely. And I think that probably has an aspect of a feedback loop to it too, especially if you're like, the bigger you go, the more you're going to sort of feel the fact that like, I'm making a statement based off a feeling, but I'm not just like, I can't just paint a picture of the feeling. So I'm going to have to introduce this degree of artifice, this degree of mechanical intent and, and presentation. And and yeah, I I feel like that, that probably, it it probably becomes a really nasty loop, the bigger the thing you're doing. Cause like, it's one thing to do that with something that's sort of like, uh, Oh, I wrote this song and it's emotional, but at the same time, I can't help but be aware that I sort of thought about it, you know, versus like I wrote this manifesto about how I'm severing ties with the basic fundamental notion of capitalism of working for a living. Yeah. Yeah. Without sort of being aware at a very keen level that that's what you're doing and probably having a lot of strong feelings about that in the process of doing it. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a really, it's a weird fucking thing. It's gotta be a really strange situation to be in. And I, I kind of, you know, selfishly, I hope we get some sort of closure at some point from Campbell, some sort of, you know, after action report as it were hmm. about sort of what he's dealing with right now and how he feels about, you know, where it's gone and what he's doing going forward. Cause I mean, you know, the, the super selfish thing is I'd love to see some more pictures for sad children right. because, like, it's a really meaningful, emotionally, you know, valuable piece of work. And, right, you know, and it's not perfect, but it is, to me, Yeah, I mean, amazing. what is? I mean, it's, it's really, it's, you know, yeah. there's, you know, it's a hit or miss thing like anything. Yeah, but, it's but he, a, he but really it, had something it, there. It, it and, spoke to me when it spoke to me, for sure. Yeah, so it's it, it's a weird thing. And I, I feel for him, it's, it's, it's a super fucked up situation to be in, and I... I hope there's an okay resolution, basically. I mean, there's not a whole lot else you can say besides, you know, I hope the guy's okay. Right. Yeah. Matt, if, if it's okay with you, will you tell the story that you told me in the car about the play you put on? Sure. Um, Was this a production of Equus? <laughs> not quite. Damn it. Um, I had told Jesse about... Um, so this is ap- apropos of nothing. We were just I- idle chat in the car on the way here. When I was in college, we did a lot of theater, 
and I was um, part of this theater troupe um, that we co-founded, that I co-founded called the Grand Deacons of Aaron Delaney, and um, it was totally student-run. We picked our own productions, and um, uh, every year we would do a different play, um, and it got to the point where when our senior year came around, a few people started asking us, like, what are you guys going to do this year? And we were all shocked to discover that anybody cared because we were just doing this for ourselves, you know. I mean, there was it was always a packed house every night, but th- we just assumed there wasn't a lot going on in Savannah, Georgia, and that's yeah. why people. Some of that may just be captive audience, <laughs> right? Um, and so we really started to think, like, well, what are we going to do? This is our last play. We're all going to graduate, and we're all going to go separate places. What are we going to do? Um, especially knowing that there are people that are interested in it. So we announced we were going to do this final play. We claimed it was going to be written by this friend of ours in Michigan. It was called The Adventures of Normal People in 3D. And um, we said we weren't going to say anything else about it. We told our roommates and our friends, like, we're going to go to rehearsals, but we can't tell you what happens at rehearsals. I know we're all good friends, but this is going to be totally secret until the night that it debuts. And for several weeks or a couple months, I can't remember, we would go away for a few hours every every couple nights and go to rehearsal. The night finally came for the show, and we got a theater, and we dressed this set, and we put out posters and got ads in the newspaper, the local newspapers. And we did 15 minutes worth of a play in which... All of the characters are introduced. All of our characters come on stage. We establish the relationships to, to, between one another. There's a dead. One of the characters is found murdered, and then all of the other characters subsequently murder each other <laughs> within 15 minutes. <laughs> and then we lay dead on this stage for 45 minutes um. in pools of our own blood. Because we were fascinated to know, like, if people care about what we're doing like the next most exciting step was well what can we do to to play with that to test that we want to see what's going to happen if we do this like are people going to get mad are they going to think it's funny are they going to think it's clever are they going to think we're making some sort of statement which i'm sure we all all the members of the the cast thought differently about that but i wasn't (laughs) trying to make any statement i just wanted to see what was going to happen it was fascinating to me I can't speak for the other members as to what their motives were in doing this, but um, the idea of just taking this thing we built and tearing it all down, that instead of just doing another play with another script and now I'll be playing a different role, which is an interesting challenge, but the the most interesting um, thing I could do with my time was to see what was going to happen if, if, if we just tore it all apart. And... Uh, Jesse mentioned that there might be an element of that in what John Campbell's doing and that like the, he's been doing comics for a long time, but he's never torn it all down before. Yeah. If, if nothing else, it's fundamentally new. It's, it's funny. I want to, can you believe that that story just came out apropos of nothing in the car on the way here? And that that it is the, it's, it's literally the, uh, as perfect an analogy as I can think of. It's, it's, it really is. And and, bef- and before you responded, oh yeah, I no, give no, you just shut to... me up, just shut my mouth, just, just okay, cut me off, just shut the fuck up for a second. <laughs> <laughs> what we didn't get to when you mentioned that to me uh, is how did the audience react? Well, we had put a note. We made a program, and this was part of the experiment. We made a program, and we listed in the program, like you often do, how long the performance is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of that, subsequently, 
80, 90% of the audience stayed in their seats. Uh, very few people left. We had someone with a camcorder who was filming the audience because I, I couldn't see any of this. I am... <laughs> Oh, you can see the fucking ceiling or, or floor, I guess. Depending. Well, we all, we all like we did. Re- the only thing we did rehearse, aside from the fifteen minutes of the play, normally what we were doing when we were telling our roommates we were rehearsing is we all just got together and hang out and we watched TV and we watched movies. But we knew that if we were going to pass this off, we had to have time in which people we were claiming we were rehearsing. Um, but with the only thing we did rehearse was laying motionless on the stage for 45 minutes because we were trying to find positions we could lay in that that's, wouldn't be just unbelievably painful. That's smart. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was just laying in a position where um, my face was against the wall, so I couldn't see any of this. I forgot to mention, we also we also passed out 3D glasses to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> which is where I wouldn't they, want him to miss any dimension of what you're doing and i have never come closer i've never really been in danger of breaking on stage i did lots of plays in college (laughs) except for when i made my entrance on this play and looked out at this sea of people wearing 3d glasses all just looking at me (laughs) when theater is in 3d (laughs) (laughs) did anybody dress in all red or all blue no oh missed opportunity well we painted the whole stage white so when the blood finally came out there'd be a it'd be more dramatic effect Because we all were wearing like um, we had, we figured out if we had urinary leg bags like that you normally pee into, we <laughs> and filled them with blood. You could release them to have blood come out of a tube on anywhere on your body. Curious, Some cheap ass Uber that, squibs, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm sorry, I forgot the question. Oh yeah, well, how did the audience react? Um, they started singing songs at one point. <laughs> um, some of the people who were caught on film were clearly really upset because I think this was finals week, if I remember correctly. And there's like, that's, I could have got a fucking hour in a studying you sons of bitches. Yeah. That's, that's, that wasn't intentional. That was just the only time we could get the theater, but never, never, never again admit that that wasn't intentional. Cause I think that's, that is the perfect mercenary note to like throw on there. If you really want to come off as a pretentious son of a bitch. Um, but uh, most people stayed, Past the point where it was obvious what you were doing, right? Right. And most people stayed the entire hour? Till, until the end. Until we stood up and the music played and we took our bows and Did, went off stage. And that's it, right? That's the end. It, you, there was no like... There was no like closing like, monologue or anything? No. Right. There no. Was no, there's no like, this is what you were waiting for. It was like, okay, that's it. Bye. Well, at, the, at the last moment, someone else walked into this bar, which was on the set, who was um, the last sort of pseudo cast member of our a minor uh, troop walked in, turned, sort of looked around, saw all the dead bodies, and then turned off the lights. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the lights came all back up, and we we took yeah. our bows and we left. We did serve um, blue Kool Aid and Cheez Its to everyone that stayed, but that wasn't really part of the production. <laughs> did was, you what, what? How was the applause? I angry. <laughs> I Just mean, to speculate, I, I, I think people were there. Would definitely was applause, and there was some hooting and hollering. It's difficult to know whether some people were just saying, "Like, okay, fine, thank yeah. God we can go." How home. much of it was Jesus. grudging? How much was ironic? How yeah. much of it was just legitimately enthusiastic? I know my parents tried to leave until some one of our friends got up and said, <laughs> "Don't, no. don't go." <laughs> That's awesome. And that was the hardest part. 
not because we swore we would never tell anybody, let anybody in on the yeah. secret. It was so, so hard. So you couldn't telling, like prep them. You couldn't be like, hey, I know this is going to be weird, but just stick it out. I couldn't tell them like, yeah. I know it's an hour and a half drive from where you guys are. And I know <laughs> you guys like coming to see my plays, <laughs> oh, but man. you're probably not going to enjoy this one. Just anyway. I, well, your parents have a story to tell from that. Well, I, I, I'm not I, sure they tell that story. <laughs> see, I, I, immediately, I immediately think, I, I want to say, was there any discussion of John Cage in the the oh, we, production we, here? We, we well, at least I didn't know who John, okay. John Cage was at the time. Because yeah, I mean, this this feels like you know basically a writ large, you know, stage play version of four thirty three, you know, which I I've always loved as an idea, and it's one of those ideas that like con like it's really easy for people to just sort of casually mock because it's like oh, 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 oh. like people like the idea that you're going to get sued for your silent YouTube yeah. video because it's a, you know, violation of, you know, John Cage's <laughs> estate's copyright or whatever. But it's actually, it's a really interesting idea as a performance. Like, obviously, you don't, like, put on the LP of a studio recording of 433 because that's, no, you're, there's there's nothing there. But as a performance piece, as the idea of having an audience, like, the performance is the audience's nervous reaction to this when it was a new thing. and. Mm-hmm. And not knowing exactly how to react to a performer essentially apparently refusing to perform in yeah. three movements. And it's, you know, so, so yeah, as a stage play, like it feels like that's exactly the same sort of like thing. You're, you're forcing the audience to react to the lack of a performative structure that they're expecting. And right. that's, that's a neat thing. So Well, and, it, and I must say, we, we didn't really come at it well. I guess I really shouldn't speak for because I found out some other cast everybody members else have had was different super intellectual about it. <laughs> right, you were just mostly uh, like I thought. Like the most interesting parts of productions that I'd been involved in before was when something went terribly wrong, like part of the set fell down or someone didn't show and some understudy needed to go on, and it was the natural extension of that. Like, how can we make a play where it goes so totally wrong that you know people may come out of it wanting to punch us? Like, uh, and no one did in that scenario. Um, we've heard no one did punch you. No one punched me, but people probably wanted to. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, I've heard different stories from different people um, since it's gone on. Some people that hated it. Some people thought it that it was that it was brilliant. I certainly don't think it's that, but it did its it did its duty. We found out what would happen if you do that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think. Josh, when you ask for John to come back and wrap up what he has done for whatever drove him to do what he did with this Kickstarter and with the all, all of everything around it, it's it's almost like cheating because well, and I don't you, mean I don't I, mean like I, I and how let let's have a nice wrap up. No, I mean no, no. like I would be curious to hear at some point from John Campbell his thinking about the state of things after the fact. Like, I, I'm like, curious to know whether John Campbell thinks that's necessary because well, I, and I don't I, know if he I, does, I and it's that, okay if he doesn't. You know, again, it's just, it, it's I, I a think, selfish thing on my part. Like if for me. I kind of no, I get, I get his... where you're coming from, but what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is that I think that this the whole story is there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no. He and could, I think he that, could never say a word to anyone ever again, and that would be and it's complete. Follow up, and and, you know? and and it, it's it's meant like Matt's play to yeah. to to leave you stuck with how you feel about it. Yeah, and I think that was deliberate. Absolutely, top well, to it could, and, and to and, some extent, and that, I think that. It, it's one of the what's one of the lessons you take away when you first are as a you know young artist in your teens or whatever exposed to abstract art, like where you say, if it's not a representation of a real 
scene, if it's not a painting of an actual landscape or bowl of fruit, how am I supposed to judge it on its merits? And you're stuck, you're left with, I guess I have to judge it on the impact it has on me. Yeah. And and that's one of the that's that's the core revelation of art in in a lot of ways to me and um, and I think that that's what we're left with with the John Campbell story too. Well, and you know, I I think I would characterize it. I would say I don't feel like the story or the work or performance, if we're going to characterize, you know, what he wrote and what he did uh, to date as you know a work or a performance. I don't think that needs a follow up. I mean, I, I, I mean it very literally and very much at a human level when I say it's sort of a selfish desire for some sort of closure on it. Because to some extent, I want to know that Campbell's okay. Yeah. Like, I, I want to know that, that whether or not he fundamentally agrees with the last things he said online so far, that he's doing all right. You know, I want him to be okay. And I, I would say it's kind of like... A novel with an epilogue like I don't always necessarily think that an epilogue makes a novel better and going back to Stephen King who we were talking about earlier I don't feel like his epilogues are necessarily always an improvement on the story but at the same time I become invested in the people in the story I become invested in the the characters and their lives and their wants and their needs and their hopes and so on and even if an epilogue doesn't make the story better I kind of still like it just because I want a little bit more time with that person you know hmm. i want a little bit more i, w- I want a sense that I, I want a sense of something beyond the really striking climax i want something that is even if it's underwhelming it's also comforting in a way right so right and i think stephen king can say thank you for caring about these characters when yeah. he writes an epilogue he, he can say like you know here you go you know the the television show Lost sort of did that with this extended denouement they released online, where they showed that Ben and Hurley and whoever were doing their own thing still. Sure, um, I think there's a place for that, but I think part of what John is doing might mean that we never get that. Yeah, which ultimately, and I, think I mean, deliberately. if if that's if that's what he does, that's fine. I mean, it, it, this is this is no this is important to no one more than it is to him. I'm sure. And ultimately my desire to feel comforted does not compete with his desire to have a sense of self-direction. So, I mean, I, I, I readily admit that it's just at the same time, you know, from my perspective. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's even his desire. I think it's just that he's he's doing, he's doing a thing and, and, and not giving people who care about him what they want maybe end up being part of the thing yeah what well, sure was a heavy discussion right remember uh, when we thought this would get a, was gonna come swoop back up well, like a pendulum that's at why the i end? thought we were gonna do it in the second act and then come back in the third instead uh, we held it for the third act and i and, take full and responsibility i had too much to no, say no about no the it was uh, it was a really I, I it was a really full good talk. responsibility I, i'm sorry for I, anybody who was just tormented by i want to go back to your story about including that letter from you to a girlfriend or a girlfriend to you uh, when you sent those VHS tapes to John Campbell, and I want to, because yeah. I haven't thought of this in years and years, but one time when I was in high school and I went to visit my sister in college, I went and developed a crush over the period of an evening on a girl I never had any discussions with who was a friend of hers. She went to Mount Holyoke, which was an all-girls college, still is an all-girls college in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. 
Um, and I went and visited and I, I was a high school kid with no girlfriend and, and really poor understanding of any romantic possibilities. Uh, and there was this girl who I thought was cute. Um, but there was also a girl back home who I had a crush on who didn't know I existed probably who I thought was cute. And I ended up not magically somehow having some bullshit teen comedy interaction with a girl at my sister's school who I thought was cute, which is kind of what you'd expect. I mean, the default outcome would be me not having some interaction with someone I couldn't get up the guff to talk to in the brief window when we were in the same room. You know, this is externally, that makes a lot of sense. Internally, I was a confused, you know, you know, crush lorn kid. And so I was so heading swinging home. this back around to having fun again. And I, I, what's I, going on now? Well, I was bringing back <laughs> down thematically to a thing. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the airport. Oh, 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 I'm sitting in her dorm room, and I write this girl who doesn't know who I am, who we haven't had a discussion, a letter about how I like her. But there's this girl back home, and uh, and I write this letter, and I don't, and I'm thinking I don't know that I'm going to find out what her dorm room is and deliver it, but then I don't because some part of me I think senses what a stupid, terrible idea this would be, and so I hold on to it, and then I'm in the airport flying home the next day, and I'm like I still have this fucking letter. And I take a quarter and I open up a USA Today uh, newspaper box and I pull out a paper and I'll hold the door open and I take my letter and I mm. put it inside mm-hmm. on like B1 or something of this and I put it back in there. So some motherfucker <laughs> bought a USA Today from this airport in Massachusetts and, and they opened it up and they found some shittily block printed letter from some kid to some girl that was probably I can't I wish I had it back now so I could read it and grimace and burn it or something because mm-hmm. I'm sure it was like the worst prose the worst fucking thing but it was at the time to me it was like this is the best I could do for this sort of self-aware performative bullshit like I feel like this may have been a precursor to me doing songwriting seriously was writing this kind of dumb shit that I knew even as I wrote every single world word was was just like misguided and dumb and hopeless and what am i thinking and then i for some reason put it out there in a newspaper box in an airport in in massachusetts that's probably the best thing you could do with with an artifact oh i think so yes i should put more i wish there were more things from my like teen years that i could have just put in a fucking usa today box in an airport out of state i mean not to be harsh but who knows in 20 years when you look back on the things you're making now whether you're you think the same thing like this stuff (laughs) is so embarrassing i should just be sliding this under shopping larp (laughs) trick for like over like what was i thinking but yeah I have to say, it does explain a lot about why in my hometown I could walk in a random direction for five <laughs> minutes and run into a bunch of shittily written love letters from teenage Josh Millard. Just any directions. I, you, yep. you, you, it, what was it like growing up in USA Today, Popolis? 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 Fuck it. Yeah. It's very unsettling. Uh, Matt, thank you so much. This has probably <laughs> been the weirdest episode. I think it, we could say weirdest episode. I think maybe weirdest up there. Weird, um, <laughs> like, like not you weren't weird. You were you were lovely, and thank you for being here. No, it was, thank you it for was suffering pleasure. through. Surely, the I, I feel like episode. you showed up to hear us talk a lot, <laughs> and and for that, I thank you for being a good sport. I had a great time, um, and uh, and and thank you so much for the copy of the chairs' hiatus. No, Ch- is it chairs or chairs? It chairs. Chairs. See this. This. That, I think that's a lit. <laughs> I respect your. Autorial, 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 mm-hmm. autorial. I think that's the authorial art. intent. Well, yeah, but autor, uh, 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 
Autorial. Autorial, I think, is the archaic dispreferred usage I'm trying to pointedly use uh-huh. like a prick. Um, uh-huh. Anyway, yes, I, I appreciate your authorial intent. And it's totally legitimate. But at the same time, as a general point, as a usage thing, that's actually a big uh, usage uh, argument is whether a apostrophe after an S ending thing of a plural. Well, the argument's over. It's two against one. So, well, yeah, but yeah. there's the entire listening audience. Uh, so, you know, write us an iTunes review we're specifically reco- mentioning. We've been recording this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chairs, C-H-A-I-R-S, chairs, the plural, apostrophe. Is it chairs or chairses? Let us know in an iTunes review and I'll write a song about it. I promise this time. And uh, My favorite panel of chair side is, is right at the very end when they're in a record store and every single record is hand-lovingly drawn. It's pretty mind-blowing. While you're leaving that iTunes review, you should go pick up a copy of the chair's hiatus so you yes. can decide after reading the yes, book. Yes, you can yes. acquire financially <laughs> the physical products created by one uh, non-Matt Bogert. Uh, <laughs> you know I thought I thought he as a kid he would have been called Matt Booger, but maybe that was just me. Uh, it's a little that's some low frang hanging low frang and hoot. Yeah, it's I some know. low frang and hoot. Low okay, I think I think we are done. <laughs> I was called Jesse Holden McCrotch. That's that's not bad. That's great. That's not yeah. bad. I dyed I dyed my hair red at one point and called got called Fire Crotch. <laughs> I didn't really understand it, especially since the people who were saying that obviously knew that I dyed my hair, so obviously knew that that wasn't the color of my pubic hair. And yet that was the best they could do. It was like, oh, you know what you call someone with red hair? Fire crotch, because they got like red pubic hair, I guess. Maybe you dyed mm-hmm. it to match. Maybe. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, it's it a little seems bit, unlikely. It's it seems a little unlikely. bit of Schrodinger's I guess. Yeah, with no, no one's going to see him, I guess. So. Thank, thanks for listening. Thanks, thanks for listening, everybody. Or maybe uh, apologies. Go, I don't even know at this point. What do go, you say? Go, go, give us a, go give us a review on iTunes and stuff like that. And, Matt, uh, did you say anything to the audience when you finally stood up and took a bow and walked off stage? Did you drop your pants and show me a fire crunch? <laughs> None of the above. No, you just you just stood up, bowed, and walked away. Yeah. Well, let's say that's what we're doing now. Okay. All right. Listen to us bow. See you eventually.